it's been way too long and I really miss you. I love you, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Top fives and deep dives with Tata PTM. 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 My favorite director would have to be Martin Scorsese. Don't you just love that beautiful, beautiful voice of Zach to just lead us right in? You know I do. You uh, know I do. Uh, welcome to Top Fives and Deep Dives, people. This is a uh, this is a special week, Mike, isn't it? Very special. I mean, you know, we've done episodes on music, movies, TV, and that's because, you know, that's what we talk about between us. But if there's one thing we talk about, Maybe even more than all of that. It's true crime. It is indeed. And we're going to try this out this week. We're going to do top five unsolved true crime cases. So the way that Mike and I set this up is we chose the five cases separately, didn't tell each other that we each find the most interesting, the ones that we can't get out of our head. And now we're going to, we're going to talk about them a little bit, give a little, you know, overview of each of the cases. And I mean, somehow in this crazy world, I mean, there's a chance that we somehow chose the same case. I'm not sure. I, what are the odds, Mike? What are the odds? I, I, I'm really curious because, you know, a lot of times you bring me ones that I haven't heard of at all. And and I think vice versa as well, because there's yes. just so many, so many ones out there, you know, I'd say the last five years maybe is when, you know, the whole true crime genre has exploded on TV and podcasts on everything. And it's just, you know, we're hooked. There's a lot of cases out there. There really are. And it's, you know, there's especially, yeah, I think in the last like five years or so, the amount of, incredible documentary like true crime documentaries the amount of now podcasts either dedicated to you know one case over an entire series or these podcasts that are doing one case a week it's just such a prevalent thing and i mean i'm overwhelmed i have to say like in a good way though and just for recent times Two things I just want to shout out in the true crime world for anyone is Netflix, The Night Stalker. Have you watched this yet, Mike? No, I haven't. Y- you have to. Um, it's about the Night Stalker killer in Los Angeles back in the day. And it is it's a small, you know, I think it's like, uh, it's pretty short. I forget how many episodes. It's either like four or six, but super short super super fucking like you can't you can't take your eyes away and highly recommend that just came out recently and you know i wanted to give a shout mike to a fellow podcast and and i I hope maybe we get in touch with them somehow and maybe we could do something together one day but i've been hooked lately on this true crime podcast red-handed I'm if you're listening to this 
episode right now. There's a chance I'm sure that you've heard of these these gals, but it's uh two two uh two women in the UK where you are, Mike. Um and they just each week go over a different case. A lot of times it's ones that do have resolution where we find out either the killer or what happened. Sometimes it's unsolved, but they are just fucking awesome. I feel like they have a very, a very similar sense of humor to us, Mike, as we do in like real life and very, very much taken by these ladies. And I, I just fucking love it. I listen every week. I love that shout out because there's just so many true crime podcasts out there and there's so many that are doing great stuff, you know, so glad that you can call out one specifically. I wonder what yeah. fellow Brit. Am I a Brit? I don't know. You are a Brit now. You've been there long enough. How long have you been there? Five and a half years. Five years, you get to say it, in my opinion. Might be getting that the second passport soon, you know? Hey, yo. Ever since hey I saw yo. Jason Bourne. I've always wanted to just have like a briefcase full of passports and currency. And it's it might be coming true. It's it's getting closer about the day. And one more thing. So now that I did give those two shout outs, I do want to get us to our spotlight of the week, which I guess you could say is another shout out, but one that is very topical at the moment. It is the most recent Netflix true crime series it is the crime scene the vanishing at the cecil hotel four episodes about an hour each um documentary about the cecil hotel in los angeles and the disappearance that took place there um mike you want to go a bit more into it uh yeah sure so i mean the the disappearance, uh, and, and, yeah, and subsequent death, I should say, of Elisa Lamb is probably probably the biggest internet true crime case of the last decade. Would you would you say that at least in the communities Def- that I? It's definitely up there. Yeah, it's, definitely one of the biggest. Things. Yeah, and this, I mean, this does talk about that, but it's also like you said, it's a lot about the Cecil. It's a lot about Skid Row and like kind of the history of LA. And I, I well, I'll, I guess I'll give my opinion. I mean, I thought that part was was interesting. And then the series, the series basically it takes a, a turn and effectively, it it just wants to call out you know basically true crime people on YouTube, uh, for being like ridiculous conspiracy theorists. And I just uh, well maybe I'll let you go first because I I just thought that was a weird turn and I, and I have some strong opinions on it. But what did you think of that? Of the whole thing? Yeah, of where it went, I guess. Well, in terms of the in terms of the the four episodes, the whole thing, I I had it was a mixed bag for me. I thought that I think similar to what you almost just said. The actual character of the Cecil Hotel, the history, the interesting things that had happened there, which, I mean, dark things, but I felt like learning about that 
in hearing a little bit about Skid Row and whatnot, found it to be quite very interesting, especially as someone that lives in LA and I didn't know a lot of this stuff. I mean, I know what obviously I know about Skid Row, but a lot of the things about the hotel I was not aware of. And the Elisa Lamb disappearance, which is de- was definitely my reason for watching the documentary in the first place, at first was interesting how they were covering it. But by the final episode, you realize sort of the way that they did it and presented it was sort of disingenuous and not, uh, I don't know. I, I, I thought that it really, one, I thought it really fell short. I thought, first of all, I thought the fourth episode was the weakest of the, of the four. Definitely. And I thought the fourth episode, and I think this might be going to your point of what you were getting at with the, with the true crime sleuths. The fourth episode jumped all over the place tonally. It, it it it's like it all of a sudden the show wanted to tackle eighteen different topics, yeah. And I did I did it was it was too much for me. I thought overall the first three episodes I did enjoy quite a bit, but I did find that there there were a few people they kept coming back to. Notably for me, and and I hope this doesn't come off the wrong way, but notably for me, the European couple and um, there was one other person that they kept going to that I felt like sort of just wanted to be in the documentary. And it's like I didn't really feel like they actually I actually thought that the the former cops and the detectives or whatever were, were good, were great. But I don't know. It just... The story itself of the hotel was so gripping to me and interesting. And of course, the Elisa Lamb case in general is is fascinating. But the way that they presented it when they sort of just kept this one piece of info that's it's a big piece, but it's also like once you know it, the whole thing totally changes and it's not this big true crime case. It was really bull it was bullshit that they kept it till the fourth. Even if you know the story, it just wasn't I don't know. It 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 put me off a little bit the fourth episode on the rest of the series. Yeah, and I, I also agree with you that I thought the detectives. Well, I, so I, I'll say this: if you know anything about the case, don't watch this thinking this is about the case. It isn't. the The case is pretty simple, and they don't do any investigation that you don't already know. Uh, which is kind of what I was hoping they were going to do. You know, they had the detectives mm-hmm. in the beginning. They have the infinite resources of Netflix. This is going to be about the investigation. And then it, it just, it, it didn't, didn't really do that anymore. And, and then, you know, like you said about withholding the whole thing. I mean, basically, I, I mean, I thought the whole thing was just in, in really poor taste. Like they didn't do anything on their own. They just presented YouTubers saying what they've, said about the case in their own mm-hmm. videos mm-hmm. and then absolutely destroyed those people at the end and were like you people are crazy you people are are uh, you know you're self-aggrandizing you're believing conspiracy theories you're not helping anybody you think this is all a game and and i'm sure that there's people like that but you are literally making the show about it right now and then presenting their same things as if they might be true only to drop the bomb at the end, you're doing literally the exact same thing and just exploiting the whole situation more. Of all the cases to pick to make that point, which I don't think is a very strong point 
anyway because people are shitty in every corner of the internet mm-hmm. all the cases to pick why do you pick the one where the police did reach out to the public and were like hey we have this weird video can you help us yes and yeah people went overboard but like even what do you expect and they had some you know and and i i watched several of the different people they had on there i watched their videos regularly and like one of the guys they had on there uh, shout out to that chapter on YouTube, Mike from that chapter. He has a video. It's been posted two years ago. It's 20 minutes long. It's called the solved case of Elisa lamb. And it comes to the exact same conclusion. So it's like, don't for me, it was like, don't waste four hours just, just to get this weird ending. Like if you're interested in the case, read about the case, this is a totally different thing. And I would have been better if they just stuck to the Cecil and the history yes. and maybe the investigation, but it's just, yeah, and and it just I just thought yeah, like you said, the whole thing was really disingenuous. Yeah. It it start yeah, for me it started off strong and it it devolved. It 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 I think you disliked the whole thing more than me. I really didn't like the last episode, but I fully agree with you in that it should have been it should have been centered around the Cecil not the Elisa Lamb case. That's where they made yeah. their mistake, in my yeah. opinion. And the Cecil itself, very interesting learning the history. If you don't know the Elisa Lamb case and you go into this, this is not the true crime, the true crime doc that's going to like be crazy and awesome yeah. for you. It's like, go into it knowing, very interesting learning things about the Cecil. It even has a tie to the Night Stalker and the Night Stalker series that just came out on Netflix. So watch that first. And overall, I think so, so in the grand scheme of true crime documentaries, definitely not, definitely not one that uh, I'll be singing high praises about. Also real quick, uh, before we get started, I was thinking about it because you mentioned the Night Stalker thing. So we, you know, we didn't pick like like show like cases that are so famous they have like a show on netflix or something like that we tried not to pick and also like ones that are just like famous historic like everybody wants to know who jack the ripper is and i've been obsessed with like db cooper since i was a kid but like these are so famous so we didn't pick those right there's definitely you know if you're a true crime fan you'll probably know at least a few of these and I'd say the one thing that's pretty common, aside from maybe one or two of these, I think on either list, most of these don't have like shows or, you know, podcasts dedicated to them. There might be one or two, but where there's like a podcast dedicated to it, but it's more stuff that maybe at most has had like a singular podcast episode dedicated to it, or like maybe it was on a TV show that does a different crime every week, but it's generally, they're not crazily famous. So, and some I'd say aren't famous at all. So it's going to be a good little mix. I'm very excited. Should Should we dive in? Let's fucking do it. Who's first this week? I think you are. You can you can kick us off this. Okay, week. cool. Uh, well, I feel feel excited, man. New topic, new idea. We we are very passionate about true crime, we so we yeah. Love it. Uh, number five is the murder. We know this is a murder. That part is guaranteed up front. 
of Elizabeth Barraza. Have you ever heard of this case? I've never heard of this one. I'm very, very intrigued. I could guarantee you and anyone that looks into it is going to be hooked. And and here's why. I'll, I'll tell you the lead right up front here. The entire crime is on video. Oh, my God. And we still have no idea what happened. So Elizabeth, I'll, I'll just call her Liz for, for the sake of uh, the podcast. But Liz is, she's 29. Uh, she's married for her fifth wedding anniversary. Uh, her and her husband are going to go down to Universal uh, in Orlando. They are like obsessed with uh, Star Wars and Harry Potter. And, and she at least is actually part of something called the 501st Legion, which is like, I don't know, it's a group of people that love Star Wars, but they go to kid, like visit sick kids in hospitals and stuff. So like really sweet. But she's a so big Star Wars fan. Yeah. And so in order to like raise a little bit extra money, you know, they're going on vacation. They are having a yard sale. Uh, and quick note that they haven't posted the, this yard sale publicly. You know, they've told their friends and family, but they haven't put anything out. Uh, and where do they live? They live in Tomball, Texas, which is like okay. outside of Houston. Okay. So, and, and I'm going to give some really exact times because, again, it's on video. So, at 648... She's outside. This is AM, sorry. She's outside, you know, setting up for the yard sale in her driveway. The husband drives off, goes to work, 6.48 a.m. 6.52 a.m., exactly four minutes later, a truck drives up. We've actually seen the truck on surveillance video earlier in the morning. Um, But a truck drives up, stops, walks up to her, has eight seconds of conversation. Pulls out a gun. Person shoots her three times. Walks over while she's on the ground. Shoots her once more for good measure. Runs away. Gets into the truck. Drives away. Holy shit. And the whole thing's on video from like, you know, like a, a security camera across the street. at someone What, else's what year was this again? If, if I, I might have missed this. 2019. This is January 2019. Oh my God, this is so recent. Yeah. And unfortunately, the video is like, you know, a lot of people have good security cameras now or doorbell cams or whatever that have solved a lot of crimes. And unfortunately, here the video is not great. But basically, what you could see is the person that, you know, the shooter appears to have long hair, uh, boots, some sort of long, like flowy. Some people are saying it looks like a bathrobe. It almost looks like a like a cape kind of a thing, like maybe a long sweater. Um, though it is worth saying it could potentially be someone in like a costume. You know, she's doing like cosplay and stuff like that at these conventions and she loves Star Wars. So maybe that's one of the angles. Um, based on, you know, the hair and the boots, people say the gate, the running gate, people think it's a woman. But it could also be like a man dressed as a woman, so we really don't know. Okay. Um, and I mean, it's definitely not random because this person scoped out the house, the husband left, and literally four minutes later, 
they get out and shoot her. So they're pretty aware of what's going on, and it definitely doesn't seem like a random thing. Nothing's stolen at all. Um, and that's kind of, I mean, to be honest, that's kind of where we are. You know, they've done, there's not been too much released from the police, but like, you know, they've checked cell phone records, you know, bank records and things like that. Cause for me, I automatically would think the husband has to be involved. You know, they didn't mm-hmm. advertise this garage sale. It happened right after he left for work. He had to have coordinated it, but in checking, you know, all the records, there seems to be no real evidence that he was having an affair or, you know, it was their fifth anniversary. Everybody says they were super happy, which normally I don't take too much stock in. But like, basically, you know, there should be an electronic record of something. And and at this point, you know, he's been totally cooperative and, and there's no real reason to suspect him except that there's really no other answer. So they have nothing else, pretty much. Honestly, nothing. You know, they actually just like, I think January or December, they released another video, but it basically just shows the same thing that you've already seen. You know, the truck we, we, we basically know is a black Nissan Frontier, which isn't that popular of a truck. And the people in the neighborhood say like, this isn't, you know, Jeff down the street's car. We've never seen this car before. It's not something we see in our neighborhood. And, and on video, you only see it like at, at earlier in the morning before the husband leaves. And then you see it pull up. Someone gets out, shoots her, and then drive away. And it's obviously not a good enough photo or video to get like license plate or anything. No, you just get like a profile basically of the car. And do, so they sort of know what type of car. I mean, they know it's a truck, yeah. but they sort of know like what type of truck it is. Yeah, they, I think they think it's like a sort of early 2010s Nissan Frontier, which again doesn't match anyone she knows, anyone in the neighborhood. Dude, you know, there's some people no that sense. think like maybe, you know, maybe something happened and she met somebody at like some sort of like, you know, one of these cons that she goes to, you know, for Star Wars or whatever, and something happened there. I, I don't really think it's that likely, but there's no good answer. That's, that's really, you know, I think the two things that make it intriguing to me are the entire things on video and there's no good leads at all. That is crazy. I'm, I'm, (laughs) I'm tempted. I'm not going to do it, but I want to just type it in and go down the rabbit hole right now. Dude, it's, it's wild. You definitely will. And, And it's one where, you know, I think we'll say this a bunch, but like, I think we're in an interesting place with true crime where like, I I understand that police, you know, they can't release a lot of things. They need to keep certain things close to their chest and it's going to help them solve the crime. That's their job. Right. But at the same time, like with the amount of people that are just amateur sleuthing that want to go down rabbit holes and help put these cases to bed, you wish that, you know, police would confirm a few things for you so that you knew kind of if they had any direction that you could look in because what we know is basically nothing nothing absolutely nothing so yeah that's that's liz barraza uh this is january 25th 2019 tomball texas wow great great one to lead us off on so 
my number five is going to take us out of the United States. Nice. And all the way to Japan. And it is the Setagawa family murder. Have you ever heard of this? Mike? So I've heard of this, but I, I didn't like, I thought maybe I would look into it and I ended up not doing it. So I'm so glad you're bringing it up. Cause I want to know more about it. Fantastic. So the murder took place on December 30th, 2000. So almost, almost at new year's leading into 2001. So the murders involve a family, the, the Miyazawa family. And they lived, the reason it's called the Setagawa family murder, they lived in the Setagawa area of Tokyo. Um, so there were four members in the family, Mikio, Yasuko, Nina, and I think Ray, or Ray, 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 we'll say. But um, I'm trying to, I want to go into this right. So pretty much all four members of this family are killed. The killer has never been found. They were, by the way, their ages were 44, 41, 8, and 6. Jesus. And I know it's terrible. So their corpses were discovered by Yasuko's mother named Haruko. Um, she had not been able to reach Yasuko. She got worried. She went over. She finds all the dead bodies on New Year's Eve, December 31st, 2000. Um, three of them had been stabbed to death, but then unfortunately, and then the youngest Ray, uh, had been strangled. So, you know, the Tokyo police department goes over, they're going through the crime scene and there's a lot of strange things about this case in that how much time the killer spent in the house and how much evidence, physical, tangible evidence the police have been able to collect yet still not, still not get a, a suspect. And so pretty much it's, been concluded that they were murdered around 11 11 30 p.m on december 30th the killer entered through an open window on the second floor bathroom which is sort of towards the rear the back of the house it's right next to a park soshigawa park so hypothetically he could easily have gone into the you know gone into the park climbed up to the window gotten in so apparently the killer stayed inside their house for anywhere from two to 10 hours. He used and this the is one where he like had a sandwich and went on the internet and stuff, right? Exactly. So he used their family computer. He had tea, melon, ice cream. He took a, he took, he took a shit in their toilet and left his feces in it without flushing. Um, and he, he's treating some injuries with first aid kits. Um, he took a nap on the sofa and so, yeah, it looks that he had, he connected to the internet at one eighteen AM and then again at around 10 AM, which is right around the time that Haruko 
got to the house, they're not sure if the 10 a.m. was actually triggered by the killer. They're saying it might have been somehow triggered by Haruko walking around the house and her discovering the crime scene. She doesn't, I don't believe, remember touching the computer. But again, it's they sort of, I think, veer on the side that it might have been an accidental trigger rather than that he's actually still in the house at 10 a.m. Do, do we know um, what he like did on the computer on at 1 a.m.? So, no, we're not. We're not 100% sure. I don't know if they've disclosed that to anyone. Oh, okay. But what I will say is here's the weirdest fucking part about it. They have so many clues that should, should lead to something. So here I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list out some of the things that we know about the killer. First of all, through analyzing the feces, they determined that the killer had eaten string beans and sesame seeds the previous day. It's a little thing, but okay. Clothes, there was some... Uh, some clothes left behind by the killer as well as a a sashimi knife, which had been used in the attacks. So they determined based on the makes of all this, that they had been purchased in the Kanagawa area of Japan. Also, this is insane to me that they couldn't trace more of these only 130 units of the killer's sweater had been made and sold. But they only were ever able to track down 12 of the people who bought the sweaters. Damn. There was also small, small trace amounts of sand that were found inside a bag that the killer had left there. And this was determined to come from the Nevada desert in the States very close or at the exact area of the Edwards Air Force Base in California. What the fuck? How fucking weird is that? Like you're saying, it's just too many clues. Like, it, there can't be more than one person that this fits on Earth. Now here it gets even crazier. They found his DNA and fingerprints in the house. What the shit? So they have his DNA and fingerprints but none matched anything in the databases of the Tokyo police. So that indicates that they don't, this person doesn't have a criminal record and somehow, you know, they're not able to, I guess, go further with that. But so they even have the killers. So they have the killer's blood and what the DNA analysis of said blood determined is that the killer is definitely a male. In it, it's he's possibly mixed race. So his mother is definitely of European descent, and his father is most likely of East Asian descent. With that said, they did say with the whole European, you know, mother and everything, it could be a distant ancestor rather than her being like fully European. Yeah. Even so, doesn't this sound like they have so much? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, have they have they gotten close? Are there good leads or like nothing? So 
no. And they, by the way, the uh, the wounds on the family indicate that he's right-handed. Just one last thing to to throw at everyone. So no, they don't. At least we have not. We the public have not been told of any leads. But as of December 2020, so 20 years now that this case has been going on, they have, by the way, never, ever shut down this case at all. There's a ton of officers that work on it at all times. To this day, they have gotten 13,658 tips. Yeah, those tip like tip, tip lines and stuff like that are a blessing and a curse. They absolutely are because it's just there's so much to go for. But it's the it is, by the way, I I didn't give this stat. It is the absolute number one largest investigation in Japanese history. There have been over two hundred forty six thousand and forty four different investigators involved in this case. And there's over 12,545 pieces of evidence. And even in 2015, so 15 years later, there were 40 officers still assigned to the case full-time. And as of 2019, 35 officers full-time. That's crazy. Yep. And there's a 20 million yen reward to anyone that truly can help lead to a suspect. This is a case, what, what what made me interested, obviously the scale of the case in Japanese history, pretty much number one ever is what they're getting at. But it's like the fact, most of these cases, the problem is there isn't enough evidence. And that's the issue. This one, you have so much evidence. You literally had feces, blood, fingerprints right there. How do you not, how are you not able to find this person? I mean, what do you think that's about? Do you think that means this person's like a rookie? Like they've never done anything like this before? Or do you think that like they know on some level that, you know, their DNA is not in the system, so fuck it? My personal, I guess, without any real basis for saying this, just my gut says that, I mean, they obviously, I don't think that, no, they don't have a criminal record, so... Perhaps they haven't done anything like this before. And if they have, they also got away with it. But I mean, the biggest, most damning, interesting part to me is the sand. I'm like, it makes me think it's a military person. Yeah. And that they obviously at some point served at Edwards Air Force Base. So... If it, I mean, I'm sure with so many people working on this, they've done this. But I feel like upon getting that, one of the first things I do is start investigating mixed race uh, officers that served there. Yeah. I mean, and it seems like they have to have been there recently. They almost definitely speak Japanese. It's just so, it just doesn't feel like there could be that many people. No, it feels like when you have all of that, you have to somehow be able to narrow this down if you're able... Because, okay, if you're in the military, they must have this info on you, right? Well, wait a second. If you're in the military, do they have your fingerprints and stuff? I mean, they must, right? They must is what I'm thinking. So wouldn't that suggest 
It's someone not in the military. Is it possible it's more than one person? So, but here's something interesting because I I'm I just looked this up. So yes, if you're in the military, your fingerprint is taken, but you can't like law enforcement can't just call up the army and have a fingerprints checked without a name to go by. So you can't just be like, oh, look at this fingerprint. Does this match any of your guys? I see. I see. So it's like, give us your prints, but like, no worries. We'll never give them away. I guess. But you feel like there has to be like some red tape with that where they can they can go back on that. Yeah, but it is also across country, right? And things are That's like- true. I mean, I feel like you would say, listen, this is what happened. This is the info we have. This is what DNA has told us about this person's ancestry. Can we get anyone that matches this description of a human? Can we get all of their files so that we can go through and see if there's any relation to either this family or this area of Japan? Like, man, well, I I guess we can rest assured knowing that thousands of people have worked on it, you know? And it's probably not up to us to solve it, but I mean, I'd say I really, of course, hope that this, um, I really, really hope this is solved one day, but I'll say with a lot of these cases, I have no faith that, well, I think it's way less likely that it will get solved. This, I at least have some some glimmer of hope the fact that they still have 35 officers assigned to the case full time there's a lot of cases like this that would be lucky to have two still on it full time yeah yeah exactly i mean it feels like if it can be solved it will be solved because they're not, yeah. not giving up on it i think so shit man but okay so that's number five all right Wow. Well, it's interesting because strangely, there's a segue to my number four, Ooh. which is the disappearance of Stephen Kocher. You know this one? I haven't heard. No, I don't. Okay. So, yeah, this is a weird one. Um, this is December 13th, 2009. Stephen Kocher is a 30-year-old man. He's from Utah. He's a member of the LDS church he, he lives in southern utah so like three hours from salt lake city so not that far from like nevada basically uh this is another one where there's a piece of video but only a short piece so basically what we know is that this guy seemingly for no reason drives from his house in utah to the las vegas area to Henderson, so kind of the suburbs out there. Mm-hmm. Parks his car in like a not very easy to find cul-de-sac. Very residential. No real reason for him to go there. No real thought that he could have gone there randomly. He gets there, let's say, something like 11.45 in the morning. Okay. He sits in his car until 11.55. He, then he gets out. And he, he's parked in the end of the cul-de-sac. And we see him on a couple different cameras of various people's houses, you know, walking up the street, basically. Never seen again. No. 
never seen again. So here's here's some of the facts uh, basically after that moment. You know, oh, his God. cell phone pings a few hours later, about 10 miles away. Then it pings a few more times, you know, in the next few hours. And it ends up about 13 miles away. Essentially just thrown off the side of the highway. The house that he is last seen in front of on camera is a little bit sketchy. I'm not going to name names, but the people or person or the son of the people that were living there is pretty sketchy. And it's a weird coincidence that police tried to get a hold of these people for a long time and it seemed like they were kind of dodging it. Or at least one of the family members was dodging it. And that's a kind of... Well, you know as well as I do, like the longer you look into this stuff, every investigator says, you know, I stopped believing in coincidences a long time ago. So that's a weird coincidence. He Now some facts basically leading up to it is he was in financial trouble. You know, he kind of lost his job. This is late 2009. You know, a lot of people were struggling. Um, his landlord, he, he was behind on rent. His landlord had, you know, basically he'd stopped answering his landlord's phone calls. His landlord had called his parents. And, you know, he didn't like that, that his landlord reached out to his parents. He seems to be kind of proud, you know, didn't want to like have to reach out for help. But his his mom transferred money into his account. His grandma sent him a check, which he never cashed. He never used the money that his mom put in his account. So we know he's in financial trouble and we know he's he has options, but he's not accepting the help. The day before... He literally drove a thousand miles in 20 hours, basically in a circle from his house. What? The only thing we know that he did besides like getting gas is he went to his ex-girlfriend's house hundreds of miles away. She wasn't home, but her parents were like, well, I guess if you're here, like, do you want to stay for lunch or whatever and he's and he was like okay and <laughs> and he said he was on his way to visit his family or some family members down in Sacramento he has no family in Sacramento that was a lie interesting so he does this ridiculous he doesn't tell anyone like his his sister calls him you know he's talking about coming home for christmas you know this is december so He's not saying to anyone that he's doing this. He's just acting like nothing's going on. While he's taking this trip. Yeah. And then he just comes home. He kind of goes out again, buys Christmas presents, gets back to his house at 10 p.m. And by 10, 30, 11, he's gone. And he's on his way to this eventual Nevada trip. So a lot of people think that he like committed suicide or, you know, just kind of went into the desert and, you know, sort of let nature take its course or tried to, you know, ditched his car and started over like a new identity sort of thing. And there's been a few sightings of him in the Vegas area, but he's, he's like a 5'10", 180 pound, blonde hair, blue eyed white guy, you know, he doesn't really have any distinguishing features. So like, I don't necessarily believe those sightings. 
And for me, I just don't know, like, why do you buy the Christmas presents? Why, you know, if you're desperate, why don't you just take the money that your family's already given you? Did he even ever send out the Christmas presents? Nope. Nope. They were in his trunk, basically. And why don't you, you know, do you really want to, like, do that to your family? Are you not going to, like, say something to them or leave a note? Also, just worth pointing out that, like, you know, he was deeply invested in the church and he had a great community there. Uh, you know, LDS people do not believe in suicide. So that's that's maybe a concern. And while he's like, you know, just a few hours before uh, he parks the car, one of his friends from the church calls him and says, and this this actually might be a coincidence, and says, hey, you know, I'm supposed to like lead, effectively like lead a sermon at noon, but I'm in Vegas, or I'm on my way back from Vegas. I'm not sure if I'm going to make it. Can you fill in? And he says, well, actually, I'm in Vegas, uh, but I can go back if you need me to. You know, he's dedicated to the church, and the guy's like, well, I'm already on my way back, so I would beat you anyway, so don't do it. So why do you yeah. say, oh, I'll come back if you have this, like, elaborate suicide plan? Well, yeah, it's like... That makes you so curious if the guy somehow had been like, no, you know, that would actually really help me out if you did. Would he have gone back? You wonder. Right. And uh, and that guy obviously feels terrible because he feels like if he had convinced him to go back, you know, then he would be still around. But and again, like, would you really run away without your car, without any money? You know, his credit card's never been used. Like, like, how could that be an easier life? It doesn't seem like it, but here's the thing is like, so is there any real evidence besides this bit of video footage? Is there anything that points us in any direction? The only things we have are this, like two very small video clips. And I should mention he is carrying like, again, it's really grainy video, but he's carrying like maybe a box or maybe a binder or maybe a folder when he's walking on the street. We have that, and then we have the cell phone pings, which seem to be random, and, and they do end in kind of a bad neighborhood, but he has no connection to either neighborhood, so I don't know that he would have gone there. I mean, basically where I think people believe, and maybe I believe this is going, is like, I think, so for one, I think he was meeting somebody in this neighborhood where he parked his car. It's too random. There's like no way you would get there by yourself. And it could be coincidence, but you know, you got to think like if I'm meeting someone at noon, I want to get there at 11:45. Then I'll get ready and I'll leave my car at 11:55 and I'll walk a block to where it is, you know? And he needs money. Maybe that's what he was doing the day before or two days before when he was driving as well, just like looking for jobs, you know, just doing whatever. And maybe he got in it, you know, some people think maybe he got involved in drugs. I'm not so sure about that. You know, I've seen one person float the idea that he was maybe giving out like foreclosure notices. And that was his, you know, some work that he had picked up. And what's really interesting, interesting. about that is like the kind of sketchy family 
near where like it seems his last video sighting is, they actually had already stopped paying their mortgage and basically moved out of that house at the exact same time. I mean, I don't know how the process works, but maybe he was delivering some kind of like a, you know, a warning notice, like they hadn't foreclosed, but they'd stopped paying. But that could all be, you know, his, his landlord has a bit of a sketchy past. Maybe he was like, hey, you're behind on rent by three months. Like, if you do this job, this is how you can, you know, sort of make it up to me kind of thing. Uh, but but again, I mean, that, you know, just because you have like a sketchy past doesn't mean that you did something or, or are involved in any way. You're just really grasping at straws because we just we don't have much. Dude, and I'm like, I wonder. Sorry, I was just going to say the one thing that about this is like, you know, we were talking about like what's been released, what's not been released and how that can be frustrating. So in December, so three months ago, Henderson police basically released like a bunch of shit, like a lot of their records, who they talked to, when, what phone calls were made, that kind of stuff. And it hasn't really turned up much necessarily, but it's interesting because I think people will be combing through that for, you know, several months to see, because it's, it's way more than we ever had before. Wow, okay. So maybe something will come up from this. Maybe someone will notice something. Damn, this one this is crazy. So he's been he's been gone This is uh 2009, late 2009. So we're in 12 so tw- 12 11 years. 11 years ish, yeah. Yeah, oh my god. Um oh, this is so interesting because it's so bizarre in a sense, like his movements in the days before the foreclosure things interesting because it's like that actually would to an extent make sense. And maybe that's what he did as well. Right. Maybe that's what he was doing the few days before. Like what seems to be a, a random thousand mile loop could be, you know, delivering notices or, or who knows. Well, and it's like, don't they typically, when you're doing that, you probably wouldn't want to park right near the home. No, you never do. That's like the key rule if you serve those is you never park near the home. And very interestingly, or I shouldn't even say that. We don't know what's interesting, right? But, you know, when you park in a cul-de-sac, you, you know, it's a circle and you go to the edge and you park like a regular, like it's a regular curb, right? Mm -hmm. A million times out of a million, that's what you do. He basically drove into the middle of the cul-de-sac. Not just the middle, like, like it wasn't just that he wasn't on the edge. It's like he didn't even go all the way to the end. Didn't even turn his car, didn't turn his car around. Just drove like into the middle, parked it, walked away, never seen again. So that would suggest like, maybe to me it suggests like, I'm going to walk to a doorway. It's a hundred feet away. Or to whatever, you know, a block away. I'm going to drop something and then I'm going to bounce. I really wonder if they checked into all the houses in that neighborhood on that street. Well, they, they kind of did. And what's, and you know, this one, it's a little bit weird. This one that I've been kind of referencing is that like there's a house and then there's kind of like a, almost like a guest house. And, you know, the police were trying to reach out to the person that owned it. And, you know, like they left a flyer with his face on it and they came back and it was gone. 
They knock on the door. No one answers. They left a business card that says, please call us immediately. They come back. It's gone. They knock. Nobody answers. Cars in the driveway or a car in the driveway each time. And eventually they were able to track down like the owners of the house and they had already moved to a new house because, again, they had stopped paying their mortgage. Um, but had kind of indicated that their son was staying in the house. And then when the police find the son, eventually track him down, he's like, he's like, I don't want to tell you where I live. The people in this town are sketchy. Like, and he like refused to say, like, he basically said, you can reach me at a post office box. That's so weird. Yeah. And he was like, some people, I mean, people say that he seemed nervous when they asked him about the guy, the missing guy, Steven. I don't know if I believe that. Like, if you know the guy's missing, you might be a little bit nervous or, you know, it's a weird I'd be thing. nervous if someone asked me yeah, something exactly, about it and my exactly. house was right next to his car. Exactly. So, but it does seem like he must have got the flyers and must have got the car and didn't call the police. And the police weren't able to reach him until like February. So like two months later, which is, which doesn't make you guilty, but certainly is maybe one angle. So I have one question for you. Do, was there, there was a camera trained on the cul-de-sac. Yeah. Uh, no, not exactly. It's like, so, but the way that it saw him, he never, he never return towards his car aka towards that house no no the, like the the camera is on like the walkway like the sidewalk from the cul-de-sac so you would have seen him come back okay so it's like hypothetically you'd, you'd think that that household probably wasn't involved if someone was involved yeah yeah it, it seems like either you know, maybe it could be a household where he turned because he never shows up on any cameras after that. But who knows if he's with his cell phone, which ends up 13 miles away. You know, maybe he didn't have it. Maybe someone else had it. Who knows exactly? Oh, it's so bizarre. And, it, and I just I just definitely get the feeling that some kind of foul play is involved. And it's, and it's hard to even know what, but... It just, yeah, it seems like something I, I should mention real quick that some people think like maybe he went, you know, basically in this cul-de-sac, you can literally walk right into the desert. And maybe he, you know, just went for like a walk to clear his head and he, I mean, you know how it is out there. He could have fell and got hurt and no one could have found him. I don't know if I about that because like he doesn't, you know, he's wearing like a button down shirt and like I wouldn't go walking in the desert if I didn't have like water and shoes and even if it was just for a minute. Well, no. And like, look, I'm not trying to say, oh, there's no way in hell that ever happened. But I I just don't believe something like that. That's it. I mean, if he did somehow walk into the desert, it was with no intention of coming back because why would you drive that far to park on this random exactly. out of the way cul-de-sac just to take a little walk? And if, like, he, if he wanted to do that, he could have just gone straight from where he parked and he didn't, right? He walked into the neighborhood. So to say that he like went around the block and then just walked in the desert in another place doesn't make any sense either. 
I just yeah, this one just it gives me a bad feeling. Oof. I I really hope that we get some some resolution on this one one day. Yeah, me too. Very, me too. Very intriguing. All right, um, number four. Number four. Number four, baby. Um, okay. My number four is Angela Hammond. Oh, I've never heard, heard of this. this. I've never even heard of the name. Ooh, okay. So her full name is Angela Marie Hammond. Uh, this took place in a small town in Missouri called Clinton. Uh, and it happened on April 4th, 1991. Angela was born in February of 1971. She was 20 at the time. It's a short girl. Um, she was four months pregnant. And she was engaged to Rob Schaefer, uh, who was, you know, an athlete. He was an athlete. He planned to be in the military. And, you know, they had a, a great relationship. So they're hanging out on April 4th. And it's nighttime. And around, I believe, around 10 p.m., she drops Rob off at his house after they had been in a barbecue together. Um, they planned to meet like later that night after his mom got home from work. He was like, he was babysitting his brother at the time. So Angela goes, she spends some time with a friend and around again, the exact times are debated ever so slightly, but around 11 15, she calls Rob from a payphone that was seven blocks from his house. So apparently she called him because, you know, and, and Rob obviously told the police everything, you know, that, that was entailed in the conversation. But apparently she called Rob. She says to him, you know, I'm actually just going to go home. I'm a little bit tired. And they ended up, keep in mind, it's 1991. So a lot of people communicated via, you know, through pay phones. It was either pay phones or the house phone. She had been out. So she called him and tells him, you know, I'm not going to make it overnight. They keep talking. Sometimes they did this, I think, where, you know, they talk for a bit. It was almost like, because they're not going to talk, obviously, again, once she leaves and goes home for the night. So they're on the phone for a bit. And while she's talking to Rob, she notices a suspicious guy circling the block of the payphone several times in a green Ford pickup truck. She mentions it to Rob. It eventually pulls up beside the payphone. And so she's a little bit spooked, but she's giving Rob the play-by-play. -play. So he gets out. The guy gets out. He goes into the phone booth, the other phone booth, but he doesn't make a call and just walks back out to his to his truck and starts like looking around the area with a flashlight, almost like the way it's described. It's almost like he's like looking through his car for something. So Angela asks him while she's on the phone with Rob, hey, do you need to use the phone? And he pretty you know he was like no no like i'll figure it out like i might you know so apparently 
again, I found a couple different reports, but this seems to be accurate. So all of a sudden Rob's talking to Angela and what's, what's unanimous across the board that I've seen everywhere. All of a sudden there's a scream from Angela and the phone goes dead. Fuck. Apparently also in the background, right before the scream, Rob heard um, the man's voice just say, I was never here to use the phone. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yep. So Rob immediately, you know, seven blocks away, this isn't far. He fucking drops the phone, jumps in his car, and speeds towards the payphone. Yeah. Now keep in mind, she's given a complete description of this guy to him and the car. So she knows, you know, he knows about the truck and, and it's a two, and it's like a two tone truck. So I believe it was a green truck with like, a, I could be wrong. Don't hold this to me, but I think maybe like a white, like top or something, but either way, what was most distinctive about the truck that think, I mean, unfortunately it's unsolved, but there was a big decal on the back window that was like a fish jumping out of the water. Okay. And so very, and, and anyways, the guy apparently was like a bearded man. Um, that's sort of, you know, scruffy beard, sketchy looking guy. But so to get back to it, Rob is flying down the street and he sees coming in the opposite direction at him the green truck flying in the opposite direction. He looks over and he sees Angela in the front seat struggling. And apparently, although this, this has been a little bit contested by people thinking, how the hell did he notice, you know, this notice, but again, you're in a small town. There's no one else on the street. Apparently, she yelled, you know, she saw him coming and yelled out his name and he heard it as he was driving. It could be. It absolutely could be. It seems, you know, when when you first hear you're like, no fucking way. But then you think about it, you know, if he's flying down the road, if the windows are even partly open, this she obviously knows what his car looks like and knows that she's given him the description. It's not that far fetched to me. Yeah. Anyway. This is where this just kills you. So he throws his car in reverse the second he sees this. And in doing that, damaged the transmission. Fuck. So he starts following the truck and he makes it about two miles. And as he's taking a right to follow the truck, his car just dies. Oh. So can you imagine this poor girl? And honestly, I feel for Rob too. This poor girl gets abducted, is trying to fight off her abductor. As it's happening, she gets a glimmer of hope. She sees her boyfriend chasing after them, and he actually is on their tail. And then you just see his car die and him go out of sight. And it's just, it's over. And it's just terrible. And apparently this all happened around 1145 or so. Um, 
So, of course, when this first happened, as with most cases, Rob was really the only suspect they had. So, you know, a lot of times it's someone, it's a lover, someone very close to the person. And, I mean, they just had his word. Two witnesses eventually came forward, both saying they saw this truck and the suspicious person around the payphones between specifically 1130 and 1145, which is like just before the disappearance. So they've never, I don't know how this is possible, but they've just never solved this. So it, for me, what's so unbelievable about it is besides the fact that like, it's unbelievable that the boyfriend who was talking around the phone as it happened was able to get to them and be like in a pursuit. It's then of course, absolutely heart wrenching that he was not able to do anything. I'm sure he has so much survivor's guilt from this. And what's craziest to me is that they had such a specific description of the truck. They even had two of the license plate letters and they never found this truck, this truck with this very specific color, this very, and, and by the way, I, I didn't say this before, there was some very specific details about damage to the truck that was given by Rob, of course, while he was chasing it. That coupled with the fish decal, which was like, I mean, th there's only one of a kind that has this. It's unbelievable to me that they never were able to find this. And so I guess Clinton is pretty close to relatively close to Kansas City. Which is obviously partly in Missouri, partly in Kansas. And there's there's a lot of people that think because they only looked through cars in the immediate in in Missouri it's like, what if this person was in, you know, yeah. a Kansas resident? What if they lived, you know, out of state and it was just a random thing? But either way, they've never figured this out. They had a couple like, so again, Rob initially for like a second was a suspect. He was cleared eventually. And then also there was another case that, w that happened nearby, um, with this 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 convenience store so pretty much earlier in the year in missouri there were two other like kidnapping slash murders one was this woman that worked at a convenience store named trudy darby she was she was rot she was kidnapped in early 1991 and her body was discovered two days later and she'd been raped and shot twice in the head and then the other was about a month later. So that was in January 91. This was in February 2091 with this 30-year-old Cheryl Kenny, who was another convenience store worker. Um, and she was kidnapped and never seen again. So the thing here, why this is connected, is sort of similar late night, things happening trudy's case was solved where it was these 
half brothers, this guy, Jesse Rush, who was 15. And then this guy, Marvin Cheney, who was 29. And with them, it's very disturbing. There was apparently based on some sort of sneaky tactics that were used to get them to admit to another person sort of what they had done pretty much when they were in prison one of them befriended someone who actually was giving out intel and they had written i I believe letters even where they said there had been like other other women and whatnot and like if only people knew like exactly what they'd done so some people think like uh maybe those two guys were involved that's that's i think the closest thing that this has come to resolve is that maybe they could have done it but there's not a lot to go on damn i guess there was a serial killer in the area area at the time named uh kenneth mcduff but again that's another thing that there's just not any good evidence and this one's probably gonna go unsolved forever is my guess damn man that's terrible doesn't it just break your heart though the fact that he got to her and he said she was pregnant just, right four months pregnant oh, that's terrible. terrible that's one where like Ugh. with true crime it's interesting because like there's something exciting about it obviously like people are obsessed with it now but sometimes mm-hmm. you know you lose sight of how tragic the cases are and it, absolutely and that's one that's just yeah that's fucking terrible all right, well, my number three is it's. if you haven't heard of it, you're definitely going to want to go down this rabbit hole. It's interesting, and it's not going to be like any of our other cases because our victim is alive and well. Wow. That is the kidnapping of Sherry Papini. I haven't heard of this. So you'll see why it's interesting. But basically... Sherry is 34. She lives in Redding, California, married, kids. Husband is Keith. Keith comes home uh, November 2nd, 2016. Sees that Sherry's not home. Kids are not home. Now, luckily, the kids, uh, they just hadn't been picked up from school or daycare or whatever. So the kids are fine. He does like a find my iPhone on Sherry's phone and it's showing like a mile away. He must live in some sort of a development because like his mailbox is like a mile away, which is where the phone is. So he goes there and he sees the phone on the ground. Sherry nowhere to be found. So he calls 911, obviously my wife is missing, you know, the whole thing. And basically no one knows anything. And then Three weeks later, Thanksgiving, this is November 24th, she was taken on November 2nd, 150 miles away, Sherry appears on a highway, chained up, her hair supposedly has been cut, Uh, she's certainly looking worse for wear, you know, and presumably... Someone has driven her, like, and pushed her out of the car, basically. And she's found. And she's chained up. 
like chained like to herself, like kind of tied up, but like with a chain. Wow. Okay. Like with a bag over her head, like running on the highway. So people are, you know, everyone in, in, in Cali is aware of what's going on basically, or in the area, I should say. And, you know, someone immediately like, you know, sees her on the highway, pulls over, figures out who she is and it's her and she's home. Now, there's two things about like I want to say this now because basically one she's she's traumatized so it's not like she gave a press conference the next day and was like well here's what happened you know it's like she even to her husband is you know revealing things over time as she's getting comfortable and and ditto on the police you know and also too what makes this case really interesting is that there is a lot of speculation and it is, you know, there's been things that have been said even by the husband, you know, obviously he was on like all the morning shows and stuff like that. Cause it's a crazy case. And, you know, there's been things where, you know, we're taking information from him and the police haven't necessarily come around and been like, yeah, that's a fact, you know, in fact, they actually got mad at him for saying something, because they were saying like that's something they wanted to keep not disclosed. So I say all that to say everything I'm about to tell you is like we think are the facts. But if some of this ends up being not true, that that could be a possibility. Okay. So Sherry, her hair is cut. She's lost 15 pounds. So she weighs like under 100 pounds, like 80 pounds. Wow. She is, her nose is broken. She's branded on her, on her shoulder, her back shoulder, like the back of her shoulder. She has bruises all over and not, not like just fresh bruises, like layers of bruises all over her body. She says that she was taken by two, two Hispanic women um, they mostly spoke in Spanish. They mostly had their head faces covered. She, you know, was able to give some details, but not much. But basically, it looks like she's been captured for three weeks and basically like tortured, starved and tortured. And then they just let her go on the highway. Well, that's the rub is why would you do that? And if you are taking her for, oh, I should mention that like around this time, not necessarily around this time, but like within the same time frame, somewhere else in California, a couple women were arrested and they were basically sex trafficking other women. So it's not impossible that this happened. But if you were doing that, why would you, why would you beat the fuck out of her? Why would you cut her hair? Why would you starve her? The branding is a thing that happens. Unfortunately, with trafficking, with, that with trafficking, yeah. So, what makes this case weird is that much of the speculation by both, you know, Reddit, like just random people on the internet, and a few news outlets, is that this whole thing is a hoax. Some of the things that people bring up as to why this could be a hoax. And again, maybe not all of this is true, but you know, it's not like police are coming out and, and clarifying certain things. So one, the phone 
that her husband found seemed like like seemed almost planted is what people want to say there's a rumor that the two of them were obsessed with getting on reality tv it's very unlikely to have two female kidnappers no one can explain why she was let go there's been some claims about maybe some weird things that she's done in her past there's been some weird ties to white nationalism from the the couple and some weird things that have been posted and or said by them like sort of unprompted Keith said like uh I don't know why they did this like we don't want to like start a race war or something like that which is like who would say that like who even thinks about stuff like that you know now obviously the the not a hoax side is she's totally fucked up like do you think she really like they staged like breaking her nose and fucking branding her starving her and and but the other thing is what if the husband didn't know you know what if she just did it on her own but then again where was she i mean she was found 150 miles away where was she for three weeks and it's one where there's no real hard evidence really suggesting that it's a hoax but somewhere along the way people point to all these different things and there's a few others i didn't mention but like that that this seems fabricated wow so i mean the the case here is is she kidnapped first and and i i'm not i'm certainly not going to accuse her of faking this though i would say if she does it it only makes it more interesting but but then you know if it's not faked i mean who did this who got her why did they let her go what what the fuck happened here wow I don't even know what to theorize about this one, honestly. What do you think? I guess I think it's all real. But it's hard for me to understand why. How and why. It's, 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 it is weird, you know? Even with them, apparently, you know, maybe, I know it's sort of a rumor, maybe wanting to be on reality TV... I mean, how, who could physically, I just don't know. Yeah. Like you have to be beaten, like branded, like the, the terrible things that were done to her. I just don't understand. So what sparked the whole hoax thing is that like, you know, she said it was two women that kidnapped her and they found an unknown man's DNA on her, whatever that means exactly. So people are like, well, okay, then she's definitely lying. And it's like, I don't know. Maybe it just got there some other way. You know, DNA is tricky. It just seems like a lot. And she hasn't, you know, it's not like she's out there writing a book. Basically, what I understand is that she's, you know, I mean, she's she just sort of just stays inside now. She's broken by the whole thing, as you fucking would be. I mean, the, the only other thing that I should mention, just to like give people a, a big... You know, summary of the case is there was like an anonymous donor and it seems like there was kind of a person that set up this donor who, who has a business uh, that's since gone out of business, actually. Um, but basically there was like, despite what police wanted to do, 
it seems like this person put out what I guess is recalled like a reverse ransom because the kidnappers didn't ask for any ransom. So it was basically like, if you bring her back by this day, unharmed, you know, $50,000 into your account, no questions asked. doesn't seem like anything really happened with that. It just seems like a weird thing where someone maybe was trying to help. Maybe they were doing it for the publicity. I don't know. But people have speculated that somehow, some way, that's connected and they faked it and they got paid. There's no evidence for that. So, again, it's just wild speculation, but it's also very strange. I'm baffled by this. And yeah, it's, it's it's weird because you can't even you can't even figure out what happens to then work to solve the case. You know, like it's like a whole extra layer of like mystery. No, it's like it's either a hoax or we're never going to figure out the layers, because if it's true that two women kidnapped her. We're just never going to get anywhere deeper than that, it seems. Wow, that is a bizarre case. I want you to know I've opened up a tab for each of your people so far that I plan to deep dive on after we get I done love that. This. Yeah, so this is this is November 2016, so still kind of fresh, but it's a weird one. Well, that's a good segue honestly to my to my number 3. Cuz my number 3, I believe is the most recent case maybe that either of us will have. It took place in 2020. It's a case Mike that I I've I've spoken to you about before because it it's gripped me. I keep I keep uh, I search for updates to this case a lot, and unfortunately, it's still not solved. But it's the case of Suzanne Morphew. Yeah, and and what's great about this is like when you pitched it to me. Basically, the first thing I asked was like, "Where is a resource that can like summarize what happened and how we got here?" Because there really aren't any. And now you are, no. you are that resource. So, so take it away. Okay. So May 10th, 2020, which was Mother's Day, Suzanne Morphew disappeared from her home in Maysville, Colorado. If you don't really know where this is, it's a very rural area. It's not near any of like the bigger city areas. Um, and so, yeah, it's technically it's in Chaffee County. And so, anyways, May 10th, 2020, um, a neighbor calls 911 to report that, you know, she believes Suzanne had gone for a bike ride and had never returned. The police come out. They find Suzanne's bike not far from her home. It's, you know, a little, a little ways down the road. And that's where this all starts. That's where it all starts. Her daughters, two daughters were out of town that weekend. And her husband, Barry, was at the time out of town, but had, you know, apparently seen her earlier that morning before he left for a job in another part of Colorado. So let's just say been a very strange case there are lots of things that don't make a lot of sense and the first is it appears 
that there's a very good chance that Suzanne never actually went on a bike ride on that day. A lot of people think that the bike is staged. The bike thing was staged. And so just so we get all the facts down, her bike was found abandoned and her helmet was found like sort of, sort of down, uh, I'm not going to say a a ravine, but pretty much just like on the side of the road in the woods a little bit, her helmet was found. The thing is that she never told anyone she was going on a bike ride. And this was all brought to them by her husband. And I will just say right now, before even going into all the facts, the prime suspect without question is Barry Morphew, her husband. So many things have not added up from his story. And it just appears, unfortunately, that there is a, again, it, it who knows? There could be other things that happened, but it appears based on everything that I've read on this case, that there's a good chance he was unfortunately involved in whatever ended up happening to Suzanne. Now, Suzanne just seemed like a lovely, lovely person. I think she was still going through chemo from cancer at the time of her disappearance. Uh, Everyone had great things to say about her. It seems like she was a really loving person, a loving mother. And... Now I'm going to just give you a bit of a, a bit of a timeline. Wait, wait, really quick before you get into the timeline. Is she like an avid bike rider? Like, did she do that normally or do we know that? So she did take bike rides, but I don't think that it was like, it's not like something she did every day. Okay. It wasn't like, oh, this, she goes on a bike ride at this time every day. I think it's like, yes, she went on bike rides, but it wasn't like a planned thing. And she definitely, she didn't do it daily. Okay timeline okay timeline so thursday may 7th we definitely see suzanne she was spotted picking up takeout food in salito which is like the town over from where she lived so she does speak to you know some different people over the next couple days but the last person to speak to her it is Saturday, May 9th, and it's sometime in, uh, I believe, the afternoon and ending as late as around 7 p.m. Suzanne is speaking, either texting or, or messaging on social media with like one of her, you know, really close friends uh, back in Indiana, which is where they had moved from. The rest of her family lives back in Indiana. And they were going back and forth talking about stuff, you know, nothing I believe about the relationship with Barry, just about some other random, you know, things. And the thing that the friend said is that typically there never was any like abrupt ending to them talking and that just all of a sudden Suzanne stopped responding. And that was the last time that anyone ever heard from Suzanne. So a lot of people suspect that something happened 
that evening. Barry's story is that he woke up at, I think he says, like 5.30, 5.45 on Sunday morning, sees Suzanne in bed, you know, says bye to her, heads off to do this job that he apparently was hired to do, I think closer to Denver, and he goes over there for the day, comes back and hears about this whole thing with the bike, with the bike ride. Here's where some weird things start happening. So, Suzanne's daughters aren't able to reach Suzanne. And it's Mother's Day, so obviously they're calling. They're calling to say Happy Mother's Day. It's honestly a little bit weird that they're not home, but apparently they went out of town for the weekend. We don't exactly know everything about the daughters and why they were out of town, but they couldn't reach her they call barry their dad he says you know she's probably out on a bike ride so around 5 30 on mother's day they call him again you know they're they're really worried so barry says he calls their neighbor and asks her to check the house and so she does she tells him that, that suzanne's not answering the doorbell there's no lights on the cars are there So he asks her to see if her bike is there. And she says that, no, the bike is not there. So he then says, call 911. I'm on my way back. He then heads back, meets the police when he gets back. He's like two hours out at this point, two, two, three hours out. So he doesn't get back until around 9 p.m. So again, all they get is, you know, they find her bike in like a ditch off the side of the road. Uh, so not the helmet. They found the bike in, a, in this ditch. But so anyways, here is what where things start to not make sense. So first of all, again, the abrupt ending on Saturday night, the fact that no one else had spoken to Suzanne, and Barry's story starts to fall apart a little bit, in a, in a sense. So... First of all, the construction job that he apparently had to do over, you know, somewhere near Denver seemed very hastily planned. So it was in Broomfield, by the way. And he scheduled this crew at the very last minute. And now, first of all, the company that apparently hired him, there's been mix-ups on whether or not he was actually hired for this job. He also didn't bring the proper tools for this job. You think if you're going all the way there to do this job, you'd bring the proper tools. What's also very strange is when he was going to this job, so he leaves home at like whatever it is, 5, 5.30 a.m. He apparently, he goes to a hotel, a Holiday Inn Express, where I believe another worker, like another one of the guys was already staying, but he like goes there, he showers, he like does a bunch of stuff in this hotel room alone. And the workers at the hotel said the room smelled heavily of chlorine. Bit of a red flag. That's not good. No. 
definitely a now here's another thing so the girls by the way the daughters again i was a little hazy my apologies they were away camping for the weekend again a little weird on mother's day weekend in my opinion because they were pretty close family but okay another big red flag this is like they live in like a fucking dynamite big big like home it's sort of out in the middle of nowhere but it is a big home they have security cameras the security cameras, of course, weren't working. Oh, Jesus. Another big red flag. Um, according to law enforcement, apparently the home smelled of bleach. Another red flag. Now, at the scene of the so-called bike abduction, as Barry likes to say, that is what happened potentially, there was nothing there, no DNA evidence to, to suggest anything happened. There was like no ripped clothing. There was no blood. There was none of the brush around it was broken or anything to suggest that she like fell off her bike. And he had a whole theory. Of course, another thing is he said that he believed a mountain lion got her. I mean, does that not sound a little, again, not impossible. Yeah. There are mountain lions in that area. But how does he know that? Why is he going around telling people that that's what he thinks? Apparently, he emailed his church to tell them a mountain lion got her, like, within the, the first 24 hours. Oh, and one of the women he was working with on this job named Morgan Apparently, he had told her this whole mountain lion theory as well. Um, and so the whole thing is there was a personal item of Suzanne's that was found about 250 feet away from the bike. But conveniently, it wasn't found until four days after the bike. Again, could have been could have been uh, planted. And they... Law enforcement has not announced what this personal item was. Interesting. Okay. Now, also, Barry, he made a plea video very shortly after this all happened. And he suggests in it almost like, I mean, this might be, he, it's, it's very, it's very, um, it reminds you of like a ransom video. Almost like he's saying, like, I'll give you anything to bring her back. Like, it's an abduction. It's like, no, we don't know that this is an abduction. Also, you're talking about a mountain lion. Like, you're all over the place. You don't genuinely seem distraught. And it just, I don't know. It's weird. And now here's where some things that really fuck me up about this. So on Saturday night, a neighbor hears loud machinery running in the middle of the night from from their house or they're not sure yes and now keep in mind bear so barry i actually did not say this earlier so he works in like construction and everything he's i think he's like a contractor or whatnot but he works with a lot of you know he works with big machinery like bobcats and whatnot so he he has a bobcat on their property and Here's what's really, really weird. So the neighbor hears this and there's a job site that he has not that far from his house that he has been working on 
every day, like in the daytime, obviously. And there, it had been like it. Th- he'd been using a bobcat there every day for the last few days. So this this neighbor knows exactly what the bobcat sounds like. And she says that sometime between 1130 and midnight on Saturday night, there's the bobcat on for between 15 and 30 minutes. What the fuck is a bobcat doing on at 1130 at night? Have they been able to like search that site at all? They have. And they haven't found anything yet. But you're starting to see that lots of things are are pointing towards Barry being involved in this in some way. And it's really, I mean, it's really sad if that's the case, of course, but it's like more and more like Barry has not been that cooperative, like with the police and um, they, it's very clear that they think that he's involved. They've done, they've had multiple warrants to search different properties that he was, you know, doing construction on and the house has been searched twice, I believe, maybe even three times. And again, we, I mean, we don't know what they've found, but they found not enough to charge him. And she had money, which is where, again, some of this is very interesting because it's like her inheritance, I think, had gone into the house and whatnot. And so it's like, and he, I, I believe, has already maybe sold the house or is renting it out. And it's like he's been making money moves ever since she died. There hasn't been a lot of updates in the last few months because there hasn't been a lot. Pretty much, I'd say the last a big thing that happened is Andy, Andy Mormon, who is Suzanne's brother, he came out to the area, organized a massive search party. There were some interesting things they found on the property that Barry was working on, but they ended up like excavating at sort of the areas where some weird things looked like, like where some things looked a little bit strange. They didn't find any anybody, any remains, but doesn't look good yeah and i mean you don't want to you know accuse people and have it not be them obviously but but obviously things do not look good no no and it's just i don't know it just doesn't make the whole thing i don't know how it could not be him there's just too much weird shit and it's sadly there's i mean if he really was in the Bobcat at 11:30 midnight, I don't know how the fuck her body isn't over there. Maybe he moved it since. Cause it's not like they searched that area immediately. Maybe he got the thinking and moved it. I'm speculating of course now, but it just doesn't make sense. And, and the drive that he had from their town to Broomfield goes just through super middle of nowhere, like, mountainous woodsy areas in which he could have buried her body anywhere to be Mm. honest well sadly with this one it seems that there's there's like almost no possibility that she's alive somewhere sadly it does not seem that that is possible shit i know i know well i mean obviously i hope it's not him but yeah 
can only work with what you've got, right? Exactly. And again, I mean, I'm trying to stay unbiased. I don't have anything against him, but it's just all of the info points to him. But yeah, it's like, and, and that's, by the way, the one last thing I wanted to say is when Andy carried out this large search party, they ended up, they had cadaver dogs and they hit on the same spots several times on the property that that he had been doing construction on dog dogs are a little sketchy i'm not sure how much i believe in them they are it's not my strongest piece of of evidence but i think there's enough otherwise that uh that's interesting i'm just yeah this case this case fucks with me i hope that they figure out what exactly happened whether it was barry whether it was a mountain lion whether it was an abduction by a stranger i really hope they figure this one out for you know the sake of her daughters and her family well i guess that brings me to my number two which i think it does depending on how you view it maybe could have a more positive outcome i don't know this the disappearance of Ani Ashekian. I don't know it. Okay. A couple things up front. What's interesting about this case is I think of any I've ever run into since I've gotten like deep into true crime, this is one where it seems like the highest percentage of people think like she might have actually like run away. Like so many times it's like, oh, she ran away. She started a new life. And like, I always think that's bullshit. And a lot of people seem to think that she disappeared voluntarily. I I don't, don't, but there's no good evidence either way. So maybe she's out there. And, And the second thing is, if we ever turn this into a true crime podcast, I want this to be the first thing. Like, I, I want to call the family. Oh, my God. Like, I want to be the one that breaks this. Because, sadly, there's just not that much out there about this case. And it's it's really interesting. And, and I don't know why. But it's, unfortunately, the, the result of that is that there's a lot of things that maybe they don't mean anything. But there's a lot of very simple questions that I wish we had the answer to. And, and we don't. So, Ani is... 31 years old. She's Canadian. She is, uh, she loves to travel. And basically, she gets home from a trip to Costa Rica. And she finds out that some of her friends or colleagues are going to China in a week. And she's like, down, I'm going. And so she does. So she goes to China. Like, she literally just got back from Costa Rica. So she goes to China. She's traveling with her friends. They're they're around for a few days. They're visiting. And then one morning, she just ghosts them. In China. In China. She, you know, I guess, you know, from things being used, it seems like she took a bath, had a cup of coffee, and then ghosted her friends. And you would kind of assume like that's where the story ends. Like she must have disappeared from there. Not really. Apparently that's typical behavior. And she went to another place in China. Then she went to Hong Kong. 
by herself, still ghosting her friends, but she is communicating with her family. And everyone just says this is like, this is her behavior. And I don't want to, I'm going to come back to this and I don't want to like, I just want to say that like, I'm not trying to like victim blame, but like some of her behavior is concerning. And this is one of the things that I would say is concerning. You know, she's a woman traveling by herself in foreign countries, not exactly communicating all the time. Mm-hmm. She we and, and yeah, so we know she made it to Hong Kong. We know that we have her on CCTV. And on November 11th, 2008, which is just like a day after she had been communicating with some of her family. So no indication that anything has gone wrong. We see her taking out money from an ATM. Actually, two transactions from an ATM for what it's worth. It doesn't look like she's with anybody. Doesn't look like she's under duress. And then we never hear or see her again. It's not like her passport was used on a flight out of Hong Kong. Supposedly, she was going to go to India after Hong Kong, but she certainly didn't fly there or take a train. I mean, there's some people that think maybe you could take a boat and that would be like your best bet if you were trying to like escape and not have someone track you. Mm-hmm. Some of the... So here's here's what makes this case... I guess here's like the weird factors, let's say. So one, a lot of people point to the fact that she basically emptied her bank account in Canada before going to China. To me, okay. that's not that weird because like she just been on vacation and now she's going on like an impromptu three-week trip or longer in China. So like it's not that weird to need money to do that. But it also is weird like she's at the ATM essentially like overdrafting on her stuff. But she's also not taking out really enough money to survive for very long. So we don't know if she has a bunch of cash on her. Did she spend it already? It's hard to really know. It seems like from her journal, which was recovered at her house in Canada, that she had maybe been struggling. And and so, you know, the running away thing is possible. That said... She couldn't have really set up much in advance because she didn't even know about the trip. I mean, she took the trip last minute, so it's not like she created this elaborate plan to escape. She had a job lined up in Argentina, which is another reason why it makes sense why she'd be emptying her bank account if she's going to just need a new one. But what's weird is no one can actually confirm that she had that job. That's like the type of stuff where it's like, I just want to call her boyfriend and be like, was this real? Because she did not have a working visa for Argentina. So maybe she made it up. Maybe she didn't. I mean, she's obviously like, you know, a bit spontaneous. Maybe she was going to get it when she got there. Uh, someone figured out that she secretly spoke Portuguese. Literally nobody knew that she spoke Portuguese. No one knew this. So what does that mean? I don't know. Maybe she, I mean, obviously Argentina, they don't speak Portuguese, but maybe she was planning to go and then cross over to Brazil. You know, she could have went to Macau on a boat, you know, maybe that was a coincidence though. And 
the things for me that are that are interesting are there was two sightings of her. So this is November 11th. No one sees her again. There's two sightings of her in Hong Kong in December by like tourists who essentially, you know, Hong Kong has a lot of expats, especially from the UK. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they have a bit of a community and everybody knew to look for her. So people that say they saw her and spoke to her, she has a like a really interesting look where she could kind of pass for like Indian. I think she's like Lebanese, like heritage. Um, and there's a lot of Indians in Hong Kong. So you wouldn't necessarily notice her on the street. But when she spoke to you and she has a Canadian accent, I kind of think that these are reasonable sightings and, and and basically they were nothing like some like she asked one of the people how to get to an ikea like it wasn't again it wasn't like she was with somebody it wasn't like she was under duress but the, the thing that really concerns me is like in the atm footage mm-hmm. she doesn't have a big like bag she basically has no bag so like where is her stuff and it's like, okay, you must be at like a hostel. Fair enough. But like, surely everyone in the country is looking for this person. Don't you think someone would come forward and be like, oh, she stayed at my hostel and this is what happened? And and the troubling part is that unfortunately, because her behavior is basically to sort of ghost people. Again, I'm not blaming her. I'm just saying the facts. It was basically a month before anyone really figured out she was missing so she's gone in november it's the last time we see her and no one really starts looking for her to december so the little bits of cctv and things like that that we have i guess we're lucky to have but there's no but it's almost like a certain amount of time had passed where it could have been crucial time if she really was abducted or something you know bad happened And, and i just think you know hong kong is a pretty safe place which is doesn't support the theory that something bad happened to her. But I just think, you know, the way that she was traveling, she could have met somebody. Maybe she was staying with them. And then maybe something happened, you know. I I just don't think that she would Mm -hmm. run away and never contact her family or her boyfriend ever again. And and for someone that loves to travel, what's the end game there? You're going to start a new identity. Like surely you would better just like work and support your travel habit. You know, like if you love to travel, why would you do the one thing, like try to start a new life and basically never be able to go to an airport again because you can't use your passport? Dude, this is, I, I need to know what happened to this, to this girl. I'm like trying to think of what the hell could have happened. I don't know. It's like, and there's some people that look into the fact that like she went to the ATM twice, like right in a row that we saw. Like, was that on purpose? Was that to like, like she knew she would be on camera and by going twice, it would raise some sort of suspicion that something was out of the norm. Or was like someone telling her to get money. I mean, that's kind of what I think. And she, you know, she was taking advances out on her credit card, which is like insanely high interest rates. You know, you would you'd seemingly never do that. But at the same time, if you were going to bail on your whole identity, maybe you would, because who cares, you know? Yeah, I just think she must have come across something 
and being totally by yourself, anything could have happened. And, and I don't necessarily know what happened. I just think that the odds of something bad happening to you in the manner that she preferred to travel versus her just, just, I mean, running away. And she's 31, you know, like a lot of teenagers run away. There's a lot of like sudden mental illness that can happen, you know, by the, in the, between the ages of say like 15 and 30, you know, there's, but she's an adult. She's worked as a paralegal. She just doesn't seem like she would run away. Doesn't. It doesn't. It's the running away part is what gets me like, okay, like you like to travel, but just running away it almost seems like she made some really some really like almost manic decisions like to go from just bailing on i know that again she was sort of known for this but like to bail on your friends to like have sort of dumped out your i mean this was a spur of the moment trip and to dump out your bank account before you leave then to be taking out these big amounts like of money when you're over in Hong Kong, like seems like a very strange sequence of events. And it does seem that it would make the most sense if something, maybe the style of travel that she was partaking in led to maybe some sketchier things. And maybe someone just saw an opportunity and, did something terrible to her that's just what i think you know just something there's just too many opportunities and and i don't i just i don't know i just feel like you'd at least like write your family a letter you know even if you're gonna disappear forever you do something right it doesn't seem like she had a bad relationship at all No, definitely not she had like a little niece you know like the day before she's last seen she she sent I think she an email to her sister and then she sent like another follow up like oh yeah like tell my niece happy birthday but again like some simple stuff like did she really have a job in Argentina is that real that that might be that that no one can confirm that you know there's just not that much reporting on it so maybe I really feel like this one if someone was gonna like put in the time put in the effort. Like maybe create like a podcast series about it. A fair amount of maybe not the the truth, the whole truth, but like I feel like a lot of answers could be found. I definitely think of all the cases we've talked about so far, this is the one that would make the best series. It it just feels like it's there for the taking, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and there's such a like, you know again, there's a community in Hong Kong of expats. Like she can't still be there. She can't like people would see her. People would know, you know, like a hundred percent. And how is she going to travel the world secretly by boat for the rest of her life? Like it's just bizarre. I mean, should we be the ones to start a podcast? About That's why her? I started it like I did because I honestly, this is the one that I'm most like. You know, no, most of the ones that feel like this, there's already like a series or people have really dove into. There's barely anything out there about this case hey everyone if we should do this tell us yes um wow that one is gonna stay with me i think we have to do something more on it i'm just gonna move us on to number two so that we keep this thing going so my number two probably the case i went on the biggest rabbit hole this week for 
and it's a case from a little over 10 years ago now. It's the disappearance of Chiron Horman. Oh, I've heard of this one. You, you've heard of this yeah. one? I had, a, I had a feeling you would maybe have heard of this one. Okay. Chiron was only seven years old when he went missing. He was born on September 9, 2002, and he went missing on June 4, 2010. Lived in Oregon. His father is Kane Horman. His mother is Desiree Young. And so she gave up custody of her, of Chiron when she was, uh, when he was quite young because she became, this is sort of a weird thing that I don't believe has much to do with the case, but she became like severely ill after taking this um, like non FDA approved drug. We don't know what for because she will not disclose it. But she ended up like going to Canada to receive treatment for a kidney failure. And, anyways, the point being, she gave up custody of Chiron and Kane, his father, ended up dating this woman named Terry Moulton. And eventually marrying. And she moved in with her son. And she became, you know, Karen's stepmom. So he went to Skyline Elementary School, which is in Portland. And don't be don't be confused, by the way, even though it's in Portland, it is in an area that's heavily, heavily wooded. So just just want to put that out there early behind the school is miles and miles of woods. Um, so June 4th, 2010, it was a science fair at the school. And what happened was Terry took him to school that morning. He was, he was doing a project that day that he was really excited about. It was about red eyed tree frogs and so Terry brings him and she has uh, her and Kane's sort of new, pretty, you know, newborn baby along with them who had been dealing with, I believe, an ear infection but or something. She was sick. She was the little baby was sick. So they get to the school. They go to his classroom, drop off his jacket and backpack. And then Terry took what's now become an infamous final photo of him standing, you know, next to his his science project. Anyways, she told Kyron's teacher that they were going to go look at some of the other exhibits. Keep in mind, the science fair was going on from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. So apparently, according to Terry's timeline, you know, Kyron, before he was heading back to his class at 845 when the first bell rang, uh, he wanted to stop by and visit like an old an old teacher from one of his previous grades. And then they ended up taking they like him, him and Terry like raced up these two sort of staircases that are like right next to each other to the second floor where his classroom was. And when they got to the top, of course, he was way ahead of her. I mean, she had the baby and whatnot. And uh, she saw him down the hallway already, you know, 
nearly at the classroom. It was like around the corner. And she ended up rather than sort of run after him. She had the baby and, you know, the sick baby. She just, you know, I think yelled after him. He turned around. Apparently they waved to each other. And that was the last time she ever saw him. He never made it to his classroom. And no one has ever seen him since. Which is just haunting to me. Yeah, it's, it's just, just terrible with kids. I mean, it's terrible. And he's such a, if you see the picture, he's such a cute kid. Like, he seems like just a wonderful young boy. And, like, it, it just makes me sad even just looking at the pictures, knowing that it was taken so shortly before something terrible happened to him. And I mean, basically where it leaves you is thinking that, you know, Terry's not telling the truth or something happened to him in, in the school, basically. Right. And so here's where things are really difficult. So I want to say first off, when this case first happened, the way it was portrayed in the media, pretty quickly, the public turned on Terry and was pretty sure that she was involved, that she either killed him, you know, hired someone to kill him. It was all about, you know, that Terry was in some way guilty. That's what a lot of people thought. And, you know, you can't blame people. I mean, she was the last person to see him. You know, he wasn't her biological son and, but the thing is that we don't really have much evidence that she had any problem with Kyron. She apparently was having marital problems with Kane. So there is that. But it's like, for the most part, I mean, she always seemed to be involved with him with school and whatnot. I mean, she's the one that typically, if he wasn't taking the bus, she was the one that would bring him to school. She was the one that was present when he had like special things like this science fair. It's like, but for all, all that we know, she was a pretty present mother to him, stepmother. And the, his real mother on the contrary, who, you know, ever since it's his appearance has really railed against Terry was not very present at all. in in, you know, his life, he did see her, but it wasn't, 24 7 type occurrence it wasn't happening all the time anyways terry is still to this day i would say what most of the public consider the prime suspect although the police have never named her as a prime suspect anyways i'm gonna start by giving terry's timeline which is corroborated by lots of video footage and cell phone pings and whatnot And I want to also state that very strange for 2010, especially, you know, we're over 10 years removed from Columbine at this point. Most schools have cameras and whatnot. Somehow this school does not have cameras, which is truly screwed, screwed them on this case, because I'll get eventually to my theories of the only possibilities for what could have happened. But we'll start with Terry and we'll give you a timeline. Terry gets to the school with Chiron and the baby around 8 a.m. After she leaves the school, she heads to the nearest 
Fred Meyer store, which is like a bit of a chain store out there where you can pick up some, some prescriptions as well. Apparently she heads there. She gets there around 9 a.m. And they're out of the medicine she needs. So she has to go to a different location. But she makes a purchase there and has a time-stamped receipt at 9.12 a.m. She ends up going to the next Fred Myers, which is about 11 miles away. She gets there sometime between 9.30 and 10. And she runs into an employee at the gym that she goes to while at this store and this this woman confirmed this meeting she tells she tells law enforcement that terry had told her she was getting medicine and she showed the picture from earlier that morning of chiron proud of his science fair project and said it was you know it was a normal interaction and so after this she ends up going to the dry cleaners which is I believe maybe even in the same, it's very close, maybe even in the same parking lot. But um, anyways, she goes there to drop off Kane's dry cleaning. Uh, the owner said she came in like just before 10 a.m. and said that she was alone. Now, that's a little interesting because she was with the baby. So a lot of people theorize here like, was there someone else in the car? Was Chiron in the car with her? As much as this is a little bit frowned upon, she was in there for less than two full minutes. She might have just left the baby in the truck. They were that could be. It was in view, apparently, of the dry cleaners, which had like windows, so she was looking right out at it. She could have left the baby in there. So anyway. From there, she goes to Michael's craft. She goes there. Um, she's on video surveillance, I believe, there. Yes, she is. So so anyways, she goes there. She's on video surveillance. She's there for a little bit. And after that is where we get a little bit of an unaccounted for time. Because so at 10.39 a.m., she makes a phone call. And I mean, she doesn't have to say who this phone call was to. But apparently, this wasn't anything that law enforcement has said it wasn't like some big thing. It's been rumored that she like called her mom. But we don't know if she actually is still in that craft, the craft store at this time. She might have like just left slightly after um she might have still been sitting in the parking lot but that this 10 39 a.m phone call is right around the time she potentially left or she'd already left they again they don't fully know this this is a little bit of hypotheticals here if we really want to give the biggest window right here because this is going to be the unaccounted for time the earliest she could have really left this craft store is like maybe 10, 20 a.m. So from that time until 1139, she apparently drives around and she says that 
the baby, you know, she had given the, you know, the baby some medicine and rocked her to sleep and that she was trying to drive her around to keep her just, you know, sleeping calm. And that's the one part where people are a little sketched out because she had about an hour to maybe an hour 20 that was unaccounted for and driving around aimlessly for an hour seems a little bit, a little bit ridiculous. But then again, I've heard of mothers doing it. Not the craziest thing I've heard of, but a little bit interesting. Yeah. I think definitely driving around to sort of calm or keep the baby sleeping. That's definitely a thing for an hour. It, uh... It's a, it's a bit of a while. And, and now here's the thing. When she makes the phone call, there's a ping on a tower and it more was made of this than really should have been, but it should not be discredited. It ping near this place. Forgive me if I'm saying it wrong. Savia, Savia Island. And you know, it's, it's an area that's very secluded and it didn't ping on the Island, which a lot of people based on how the media portrayed it and how law enforcement portrayed it, they portrayed it as if it pinged on this little island that's very remote, and that's not the case. There's only one cell phone tower in this entire big area, and it happened to ping this area. But she she absolutely could have been, and evidence seems to show definitely was not on the island, but perhaps nearby. And the reason we know she wasn't on the island, there's only one bridge on and off of it, and there's surveillance cameras, and her car never went over the bridge that day. Anyways, this is what happens. She drives around. 11.39, she gets to her gym. And at the gym, there's an on-site daycare. So she checks in the baby to the daycare, works out, and she ends up... I guess the day before she had done the same thing or she, she does this somewhat regularly. But so the day before the baby, I guess had gotten very fussy in the daycare. So she ended up picking up the baby a little bit early and then chatted with the ladies in the gym for the last 10 to 20 minutes. And then she went home, got home around 1240 and she's home. She gets home, has a regular afternoon, uploads some pictures on Facebook. A few of them are from the science fair this, that morning, pretty regular, you know, stuff for her. And Kane arrives home mid afternoon around 2 PM, three 30. It's when the bus, you know, comes to the bus stop. So Kane, Terry and the baby, they all walk together and they're waiting for him at the bus stop. And of course he doesn't get off. Bus driver says, Kyron never got on the bus. And from there, it's off to the races. They call the school. They find out that he had been absent all day, which she apparently the teacher claimed that she was under the impression that Kyron was going to a doctor's appointment. Terry says that doctor's appointment was for the following Friday. There's some confusion and it's, it's, very, I don't know. It's a little bit interesting here. So 
I mean, Mike, what you, as someone that, yeah, you've heard of this case, but maybe you don't know all the details like this. To you, does it sound like she took Chiron possibly during this time? I think it's possible. I mean, in, in that case, it makes the picture look very suspicious, right? Just to like to put him in the school when, you know, maybe she then takes him right out of the school. True. But then you're thinking for someone that has so much access to him, 24-7 access, the best she could do was bring him to school. What if anyone had seen them? And and this is, you know, both sides of this coin is that it's a science fair. So there's a bunch of people in the school more than ever. Exactly. So not only does that mean it's more risky for her to get seen, but it also means there's more people there that could have done something wrong. Totally. And this is where the other, I'm going to get back to Terry because there's more to that story. But I figure we might as well talk right now about the other possibilities. So here's the thing. There were nearly 500 people in that school that morning. There was no sign-in requirements. You didn't need a visitor badge. You know, there was no security in place. There was no security, no cameras. All the doors were unlocked. Like anyone could have been in there. Any predator could have been in there hypothetically. So not many people from the school were allowed, not many of the kids were allowed to talk to the media, media, but two were. One was Chiron's desk mate. And he said, he said pretty much his sequence of events was he saw Chiron in the hallway who said he was going to go check out a cool electric project, which some people have said was a project that was set up in the basement of the school. And his desk mate implied that Chiron then ended up like sort of catching up with his group later and that the substitute noticed Chiron was missing when they got back to class and that she had said to the teacher, Miss Porter, Chiron was gone and Miss Porter said, you know, that's okay. He probably just went to the bathroom, which not helping kit matters. Chiron was known for just like sort of disappearing and like going to the bathroom, like without telling anyone. It was like a weird like thing of his. And the reason he had a doctor's appointment for the following week was that Terry had said he'd recently been like really spacey and having sort of strange little like seizures almost and this was sort of corroborated by like ways he had been like some little quirks about him that like people at school knew about anyways the principal discounted this statement because he said there was no substitutes that day but a lot of people say like this was a little kid saying this and that the statement shouldn't be discredited because by sub he absolutely could have meant the volunteer chaperone that was leading the groups through the science fair which there was that day. So I feel like this is credible. I mean, you never know with a young kid that's seven, but anyways, there is another person that was able to speak to the media. And that person claims, I think it was a kid that was a little bit older, 
but he yeah was a seventh grader and his his project was like displayed in the gym and he said he saw Chiron laughing with friends in the gym without Terry there now here's where it gets a little dicey there's a school employee who told Terry that she'd seen Chiron with a male chaperone after she had left. And apparently this was said to them the day, said to Terry the day of, of him going missing. Again, though, it hasn't been confirmed. So it's a bit of hearsay on her side, but apparently Kane heard it as well. But so the, anyways, what I'm getting at, it's very possible that someone saw an opportunity to take him. And I mean, you're in a school that typically does not have adults everywhere and there's adults everywhere. And maybe just somehow someone convinced him to go with him or, or somehow kidnapped him. It's possible. I'd say to me, if it's not Terry, to me, that's the most likely scenario. There's also the possibility. A lot of people seem to think as he was known to wander off a bit, somehow wandered into, you know, looking around for the science at the science fair, somehow wandered into an area of the school and something happened and perhaps he got stuck in a weird little secret nook and just died. I find it unlikely. I feel like by this time they would have found his body, but I don't know how extensively they searched the school. I know they did search it, but I don't know how extensively. Another theory that people like to throw out is the fact that because it was so heavily wooded around the school, what if he thought, oh, I'm going to go into the woods and find a frog for my project or, or just he wanders into the woods because he's known recently to have these episodes and then by the time the woods were searched, they did search a two, you know, a two mile radius around in the woods. But this was so, so much later that night that he could have gotten much further than two miles. And maybe he fell somewhere, maybe he got disoriented. He wore glasses and he was pretty much legally blind without them. So could have got lost in the woods and died. But I, again, find this very unlikely who just wanders into the woods. He wasn't known for wandering into the woods. He was known to wander a bit, but he was very scared of like wandering off somewhere alone. So like, I don't think he would wander out into the woods. To me, it's either has to be a random abduction or Terry. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. What's tough is that there is a couple people that claim they saw Terry walking with him, with Kyron and the baby back to the car. And if that is true, I mean, then we all know where this went. But here, then it's like, how did she convince him to come out, convince him to stay? And why would she go run all these? I mean, yes, okay, if she wants to show she's places. But what if anyone had seen him through this whole time? Was he just, was he just sitting in the car waiting like was she leaving him in the car during all these things it just doesn't seem to make sense and then she's able to just okay so she needs only an hour to dispose of his body and then she just goes to the gym i don't know i don't i don't know if i buy it i'll i will 
I will say, so there are some really strange things about her. So she failed a couple polygraph tests. The one thing that doesn't make me so suspicious about that is she was apparently really upset and kept being like, I want to take another and like would do these like 10 hour tests. And it was like not a normal person. If you failed them and you're guilty, you're pretty nervous. She like was visibly like upset and like, but I didn't have anything to do with this. Like I, I need to retake this. And it's like polygraph tests. We know that they don't mean that much. Would you agree, Mike? Like, they don't always mean that yeah. much. Yeah. But now here's where I think most people in the media thought, well, she's guilty. So there's an allegation that Terry tried to hire someone to murder Kane, her husband at the time. This is what this, the la- a landscaper that worked for them briefly, Rudy Sanchez, claims. He claims... He, he alleged that they were having an affair and that apparently he and Terry had a meeting at a restaurant where she told him that she wanted him to kill Kane, her husband, because he was having an affair and he mentally and physically abused her, was afraid that he was going to try to take their daughter away, the baby, blah, blah, blah. And so this meeting apparently happened five to seven months before Chiron went missing. He was told that he should make the hit look like a mugging and that he would, the payment would be $10,000 that Kane carries on his person at all time, at all times. So here's what, here's what fucks with me and where I don't buy this at all. Rudy Sanchez can't speak fluent English and Terry cannot speak Spanish. So he needed a fucking translator during his deposition. So if they can't even communicate, how the fuck are they talking in a restaurant about this murder for hire? And it's like they're, they're, the, the part where, again, people are like, oh, this is really fucking sketch is apparently she like hired this guy behind Kane's back and like he didn't know about it. But she says that it's because his uh, because her son was like doing landscaping chores and it was like way too much. And she wanted him to look good to Kane. And so she hired this guy to like help out a few hours a day while he was doing it. I just don't see it. It's a tough thing to uh, negotiate if you can't communicate. Right. And so they also tried to do a sting on Terry. Like with this, they, they had Rudy, the guy show up at, her house with a wire and it all ended with Terry calling the cops on him. Then there was another thing where, where one of Terry's like gym friends, this, this woman, Dee Dee Spitcher or Spicher, she came to like stay with Terry in her home and they'd known each other for five years, but they weren't like that close. It seemed like Dee Dee was a little bit of, like, I don't know, a little bit off. Anyway, it became a thing that like maybe she assisted, maybe, you know, she had assisted in this whole crime and apparently like they got burner phones because they thought that their phones were tapped and whatever. And then it was like they ended up like asking Dee Dee about her alibi for the day 
that Chiron went missing and it was sort of sketchy. She said she'd been volunteering on a property that was near relatively close to the school, but even closer to their, the Horman's home. Um, and that apparently like she was helping with like landscaping for a party that was going to be the next day. But like when they went to talk to her employer, they discovered two things that were fishy. One, she wasn't volunteering. She was being paid for this. And two, she was an hour late to lunch to which she replied that this was the first time on this, you know, job, which was not like that long of a job that she'd been invited to lunch and she sort of took it as an open invitation and that it was a 40 acre property. She'd been working in a far corner of it and just like, you know, whatever, you know, but it's, it was a little, it was a little shaky. And so Terry was advised eventually to just stop communicating with this DD. She's a problem. So she hasn't spoken to her since then. And then the biggest red flag for Terry. After Chiron disappeared, one of Kane's like high school friends, this guy Michael Cook, showed up to help out with the search. And Michael had never, and Terry had never met before. They didn't know each other. Um, but he was very involved with the search and he like organized the first vigil they held. So after Kane had left, when, when all the accusations came out that, you know, she had tried to kill him and whatnot, she started texting with Michael and it turned very sexual and it's very one-sided. So it's like, she's doing almost all the, the sex talk and he really like truly almost said nothing back. And like, it, it's strange. It's very strange. I don't know. It It's not good though. Would you agree, Mike? Yeah. Yeah. That is not a good look. With all this said, nobody knows what really happened. And it, it really kills me. It makes me so sad because he was so young. And if, if Terry's telling the truth, he turned that corner and who knows what happened to him. So you think it was someone else in the school? It could have been her, but my gut just says, and I just don't, I don't know. I think it's such a small window of opportunity. Huh? Yeah, man. That's, that's I mean, that's a terrible one, but yeah, it seems like it's going to be difficult to solve. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Well, we're at number one, my friend. Well, and I definitely saved the one that I've spent cumulatively the most time obsessing over since it happened. Wow. I mean, I've listened to everything. I've watched everything. I've read everything. This one, I just, small towns freak me out. And I think that's why this one initially grabbed me. So this is the the death uh, of Thomas Brown. Ooh, I don't know this okay. one. I'm gonna, I'll call him Tom from now on. But he is a was a senior in high school. He's from a very small town, Canadian, Texas. Very wealthy town, very conservative town. Like 2,000 people, so real small town. Uh, yeah, he's a, this is 
2016. Wednesday, November 23rd, 2016. It's the day before Thanksgiving. He is hanging out with his friends. Uh, basically, it seems like what you do in this town, and I can I can empathize. I'm not from a town of 2,000, but in Connecticut, there's not that much to do ever, right? So basically, it seems like what they typically would do is like him and his friends would meet meet at one place. You know, everybody parks their car. They get in one person's car. They go for a drive. You know, on this night, they stop at kind of a uh, kind of a cool looking like bridge like an old bridge and they hang out there for a while but it's kind of cold so they eventually go back go for a drive his curfew is midnight and sometime like 11 20 ish they go back to where they have all parked the cars he gets in his car drives away nobody none of his friends have any he didn't say anything weird Nothing weird seems to have happened. It just seems like a normal day. He's an extremely well-liked kid. He's the class president. He, he had been on the football team, uh, though he recently quit because like his starting job was given away. He was in the school play. Uh, he basically got along with everybody. Everybody loved the kid. They had a, a typical great night. 11-28, he gets gas. We know this because... You know, he's got the, there's the debit card receipt. And again, his, his curfew is 12. So small town, you know, he's got plenty of time to get home. Maybe he is going to do something else in between. Uh, but basically, that 1128 is the last real thing that we know he did. You know, once he misses his curfew at 12, which he never does. He never, ever, ever misses his curfew. And and I'll say right now that like every true crime case, you could turn on your TV right now, put on whatever investigation discovery, and the person, you know, the person's family will be saying they were the best person ever. They never did anything wrong. I can't believe this happened. And then that may be true, but normally I don't put much stock into that. In this case, I really believe because every single person says he's a great kid. He never missed curfew. He never got involved in anything, you know, sort of untoward. So when his mom texts him just after 12, so like he's just minutes late on his curfew, that is enough for her to be like, wait, let me text him because he never misses it. Wow. And, you know, I'm not that kid. I was never that kid. But I believe it. I really do. And... You know, basically, he we know he read the text, but didn't respond. Ten minutes later, she texts him again. Again, read. Not responded. Every subsequent text does not get read because the phone is off and it will never be turned on again. So, you know, once he doesn't come home, you know, his mom starts you know calling everybody you know his his brother's home from college because it's thanksgiving weekend so his brother goes out searching you know they've got like four or five people different people the friends that were hanging out with them the brother you know a bunch of people a small town you know the thought is they can drive around and find them and the only thing that really happens that night that may be critical is 
the brother is driving around with one of the deputies from the town, sees um, that this gate is open, which is always locked. And the gate leads to like, I don't know, like a water treatment plant. And it's literally always locked and it's open for some reason. And again, you know, you would look anywhere at this point, right? Your brother's missing. You look everywhere. And the deputy he's with says, you know, it's six o'clock in the morning. My shift is over. I can't search that with you. I have to go. So they don't search it. Well, not long after, again, this is a wealthy town. So one of Thomas's friends, their dad uses his personal helicopter and finds the truck, Thomas's truck. And it happens to be, you know, down that place that they didn't search a few hours ago. The truck is abandoned. His backpack's not in it. You know, his wallet, his cell phone, none of that stuff is in it. There is one single bullet casing to a gun that nobody in the family owned. Basically no blood. So we don't know what the bullet's about, but it doesn't look like he could have been like shot in a truck. But there is a bullet. There is a bullet casing, yeah. Okay. Now, this case, this is where the case like explodes and nobody knows what to think. Did he run off? I mean, and, and, and basically we enter with the sheriff of the town. The sheriff has never worked a missing person's case before. And the reason that I don't like small towns is because I'm not accusing this guy of anything because sometimes it's, you know, it's just a lack of familiarity with what to do because they don't work the case. But I will say, I personally feel like I know this guy. I don't know him personally, but I've had my fair share and then some of run-ins with cops in small towns. And this guy, he... In his own words, he says, I love kicking indoors. And I know I know this cop. Oh, God. And that's what I'm saying is I know this cop. He had a run-in with Thomas previously where Thomas was doing his thing with his friends, like walking around the town. And he wasn't even hired in this town at the time. And he came over and was, like, giving him a hard time and, like, you know, swearing at him. And, and, and I believe that happened because – I know cops that are like this, you know, and they just get arrogant and they think they own the town and there's not that much supervision and they're just like, I'm the law and fuck you. So they find the car. Guys never worked a missing person case before. So maybe it's not intentional. Maybe it is. They bring the truck back to his mom that day. And she's like, well, wow. she's like, did you like process the truck? And he's like, yeah, it's too dirty for us to get fingerprints. Nothing we can do. That seems quick. It's crazy. It's crazy. And basically, you know, within a few days, he has come to the conclusion that Thomas is gay and he's run off with his gay lover and end of case. How the fuck did he come to that conclusion? Now, well, so I will say that we know that Tom had an interesting sexual fetish and and i i don't think it's important to harp on but basically from that this guy concluded he's gay i'm gonna add this in i'm editorializing a bit 
this is Texas. If you're gay, you're the devil, and you ran off and fuck you. And that's the attitude that I get. So that was basically his theory. And from here, you could read about this case forever. There's so many different things that people say about it. You know how small towns get where there's just tons of gossip. There's all kinds of stuff that has been floated around. But I personally think it makes sense to just focus on the small things that we know are true because they are crazy enough. So about a year after he disappears, at the, by this time, the mom has been openly critical of the sheriff, and justifiably so. Even if he's innocent, he's fucked up the investigation. She's got a private investigator in there who everybody in town, not everybody, but people on the internet and people in the town think is like, you know, with, with, with PIs, there's always a little bit of like, is this person taking advantage of the family? This guy seems to have a very high image of himself. You know, that doesn't always go work with the sheriff who thinks he owns the town. There's a dynamic there. Maybe they're both dicks. I don't know. This guy, he organizes a search. And in that search, he finds a cell phone that we now think is Thomas's cell phone. This is a year later. This cell phone is a few miles from where the, the truck is. Everybody agrees. Police, state police, the family, the private investigator, that this cell phone 100% was planted. Somebody knew where they were doing a search, planted the cell phone for them to find it. Because it's been a year and it is literally pristine. It's just a clean iPhone sitting exactly where they were going to search that day. And basically the only people that knew where they were going to search, like the volunteers didn't even know until like day of. The only people that knew were the private investigator and law enforcement. Now eventually this case is turned over to the state's attorney general office because the mom is so upset with the way the sheriff is handling it. And frankly, he's like, you know what? If you don't like what I'm doing, people in the town are accusing me of shit. This is getting ugly. If you want them to do it, then I'm happy to hand it over. Eventually, the state's attorney general does a polygraph on the sheriff and the private eye. Private eye passes. And they openly asked him if he planted the phone. Sheriff does not pass the polygraph. Wow. But we don't know exactly what questions he didn't pass, if that makes sense. And as we know, the polygraph doesn't always mean something, but it's it's sketchy, especially I feel like in this case and how it's been presented so far. So and that's and that's where it's creepy because like again, we can discuss who, but like someone that's not Thomas planted the phone. So they know what happened, and they have the phone. One more year after that, so now two years on, 12 miles away, it just so happens that the same deputy that had searched for Thomas, you know, the the morning of, he's on duty. Some people make a big deal of this. I don't really. He's on duty. Mm -hmm. He sees like a little track on the road. This is Texas. A lot of people hunt. This guy likes to collect um, like deer antlers. Nothing wrong with that. 
he follows this little trail down. You know, he pulls over, he follows this trail down, and he finds Thomas's body. No. Somehow, it's like 12 or 14 miles from where the truck was to where his body is. There's nothing around in terms of like, like a gun to say like he shot himself. But he's so decayed that we don't know what happened to him. Ugh. And there's there's definitely some weird factors either way. And it's been recently put out there that he like Googled suicide helplines that night. Who knows what that is, you know? And and even if he was suicidal. How did he get fourteen miles exactly. away? How did he do it? And and what about the phone? Who did he give the phone to? And why wouldn't they have come forward? Something's gone on, and that person's deliberately being deceptive. But basically, now obviously the sheriff fucked up the investigation because his theory was wrong, you know? And so he was never looking for this to be the thing. Ultimately, the state's attorney general held, I don't want to say like a press conference, but like a big meeting with all the people involved. The sheriff, the family, a whole big thing. And they announced their decision having looked at all the evidence and I've never dude I've never heard of this before ever I guess it's a thing but I've never heard of this and this is why this case like keeps pulling me back in because each development is crazier than the next they concluded that they were suspending the investigation and that there was no evidence of murder no evidence of suicide for all they know he could have died of natural causes They basically said, we're stopping the investigation. Anything's possible. We don't know anything. Goodbye. No. That's fucking bullshit. It's unbelievable. And it's not like it's a 20-year-old case. At this time, it's like a three-year-old case or four-year-old case. Can I tell you something that's just so insane about you picking this case as number one? Yeah. I don't know a thing. I didn't know a thing about it until you just told me but today a mere few hours before we started i was on a hike with one of my buddies and he brought up the pod that he just listened to the podcast about this case and that he thought i would love it yeah so there is an eight part pod i think the last part was like maybe november so just finished recently it's called tom brown's body uh, a really highly respected writer for Texas Monthly does the pod, and there's some interesting stuff that comes out uh, on there. But I just needed I needed to say that because I've been losing it ever since you dropped this, being like, "Wow, like this is the perfect." It's just serendipitous, and and that's basically where we are in terms of the facts. You know, it's gotten so ugly in the town. There's there's so many rumors going back and forth. People accuse. The sheriff, people accuse the mother of doing stuff, like knowing Jesus. he killed him, moving the body, hiding things up, like and it's just again, like this is how small towns work, you know, like they're just rumor mills, like things just go crazy because everybody knows everybody's business. And and just the fact that everybody agrees that the phone was planted means that there's fuckery afoot. So even if it is a suicide, there's some fucked up stuff going on. A hundred thousand percent. I am so fucking curious, dude. 
And I like, do they say what time he looked up the suicide? Well, I guess it was like nine thirty or so. So it was like when he would have been with his friend, which is almost like it's so weird because they say he was acting. Yeah, normal. and and even if it was the reverse, like maybe I don't know, man. Like maybe one of his friends had said something like that he was feeling depressed, and he was like, "Here's the you know, I don't know," but like no one said anything. And one thing that I'll say, there's so many like little bits, like it's impossible to go into it without like going on for hours. But like mm-hmm. sometime around when like he was getting gas, his ex-girlfriend. So he broke up with this girl about two weeks ago, which is some people say, okay, maybe he's suicidal. And, and maybe he is. By all accounts, he seemed fine. But, you know, you're not going to like necessarily act depressed but it would be reasonable to be a little bit sad and his ex-girlfriend like texted him basically are you okay and she and he never responded to that that was like right around when he stopped responding to texts okay and it's like did something happen with his friends and you know small friend group she found out within you know a half hour about something that happened when they all met up or when they were all hanging out and, did, and then she texted him. Are we, are we saying maybe they didn't like the, maybe something happened and the friends are all, you know, in, in on like, the cover up, let's say. Right. And, and another thing that's like, uh, I'll, I'll say this is the last thing I'll probably say, but maybe random, maybe not, but like one of the friends that he's was with, Two weeks after his body was found, that friend's dad killed himself. And there was a rumor that he had put something about Tom's body being found in his suicide note. That seems to be not true. So I'd like to dispel that, you know, because I don't think that's true. But it is very strange. But there's just so many strange things. There's just so many strange things. And that's that's kind of why I pitched it like I did in the sense of like even if you just focus on the facts that he's dead, he's far from his truck. He never he, – he didn't like hanging outside. He liked to play video games. Would he really walk 14 miles through the woods in the middle of the night with no flashlight? Who Who's planting a cell phone? What the fuck is that about? The, this, this town knows more – than what we know you know and it's just one of those like small town mysteries that you know i don't know what's going to happen supposedly the state's attorney general still investigates supposedly there was going to be some like grand jury thing that was going to happen last year but that was never officially announced and it could have been delayed because of covid but it's such a crazy case that's on so many people's radars. Well, you just said yourself like a random person that, you know, in LA that I I do feel like the truth will come out eventually, but it's, it's going to be wild no matter what it is. I, it needs to, I I have faith just because it happened pretty recently. Um, wow. That is an awesome fucking number one. I can't wait to hear yours. I feel like I know what it is, but that could be totally off. I think you do. I think you do. Um, Because we've talked about it before, and it it just couldn't not be. So I'm pretty sure you do. But so my number one, 
is what is commonly now referred to as the Springfield Three. Oh, this isn't what I was thinking, actually. But yeah, I mean, I've heard of it and we've talked about it. So, yes. So it took place in Springfield, Missouri in 1992. It is the disappearance of Cheryl Levitt, Suzanne Streeter, and Stacy McCall. Cheryl was was a mother. She was 47 when they disappeared. And then Susie Streeter was her daughter. She was 19 years old. And Stacy McCall was one of Susie's friends, and she was 18. They disappeared on June 7th, 1992, which was the night of the girls' graduation. There's probably no case that kills me more than this one because there's so little to go on and the little there was was botched and it just oh it's uh it's crazy i'm just gonna get into it Susie and stacy they graduated from kickapoo high school on it was june 6th so it was early morning hours june 7th that the disappearance happened they were last seen around 2 a.m. on the morning of June, early morning of June 7th, when they were leaving the last of the graduation parties they had gone to that night. They both were supposed to spend the night at their friend Janelle Kirby's house, who, to be completely honest, was closer with each of them individually than the two of them were close with each other. I get the impression that that Stacy and Susie used to be maybe closer friends, but they were still friends. But bottom line, like they didn't hang out all the time, but that three of the girls, they're supposed to all have a sleepover. I guess Janelle was having people sleep over after graduation. I'm sure some of us have been there before. And um, so anyway, they left to go to Susie's to sleep for the night since it was too crowded. They arrive, hypothetically, late night. Apparently, it could have been as late as like 3, 3.30 a.m. So they're seen around 2 a.m. leaving these parties. A server at a steakhouse nearby claims that they had stopped by there between 2 and 3 in the morning. It's very close to the home where they disappeared from. But... This has never been proven that this that this witness testimony was good. But again, I don't know why she would why this server would lie. Anyways, following morning around 9 a.m., Janelle and her boyfriend end up visiting the house. Not even they don't go that early, but they start they're they're calling in the morning because the whole thing was Janelle, her boyfriend, Susie. And Stacy are supposed to go to the water park the next day. It's the whole thing. They're going to spend the day at the water park. And anyways, they were supposed to leave from Janelle's in the morning. You know, no one's picking up the house. No one's picking up the house. So eventually Janelle and her boyfriend drive over. They get to the house and all of the all of the cars were parked outside the glass lampshade 
that surrounds the porch light, so on the front porch, was shattered. The light bulb itself was fine, but the porch, the, the shade around it that was glass was shattered. This happens. They go in the house. They find their dog, which is this Yorkshire Terrier named Cinnamon, and Cinnamon appeared really like stressed out and agitated, which I believe the dog was like in the bat, like maybe in the bathroom or something. Either way, the dog was really like agitated. And then also, and here's where things get really weird. Apparently Janelle while in the house with her boyfriend, someone called and they picked up and it was a random male voice who was like making like sexual innuendos. And apparently right after she hung up immediately, the person called again and she hung up the phone again. Very strange. So here's where things are unfortunate. So one thinking, and this I totally can see your high school kids, you just graduated when they're at the house the boyfriend cleans up the broken glass. Again, they don't at this point think anything's wrong. They're like, all the cars are there. Like maybe, you know, who knows, but this thing's broken. We should be nice and clean up the glass. Several hours later, Stacy's mom and some other people from the town visit the house after she's not able to reach, you know, her daughter. And it's starting to, get a little people are starting to get a little bit worried and so inside there's some strange discoveries that make you think something strange happened all of their purses were sitting on the floor of the living room like all sitting like right next to each other also susie and her mom's uh cigarettes were left inside the house and apparently they like didn't go anywhere without them. So Janice, Stacy's mom, she calls the police from the, you know, the report them missing after, and this kills me right here. After she places the call to the police, she sees there's a voicemail. She listens to it. And she has always said it was a very strange voicemail. She hasn't gone into full detail, but again, it sounds like maybe, maybe it was this same person that called earlier when Janelle was over there and it was accidentally erased after she listened to it. And some of the things they told that she told the police, because she couldn't remember everything from it, they were very curious about that call. And they, I actually, let me take this back. I forgot this. They personally didn't believe that call was connected to the calls that Janelle had received earlier. They thought those were some weird prank calls that apparently had been maybe happening, I think, in the town a little bit. Either way, very strange that this happens the day that they disappear. So the problem is there's no sign of a struggle. And... Cheryl's bed so you know the mom's bed had appeared to be slept in there were signs that she had slept in the bed and 
the only thing they could find besides the purses, which again, is very weird that they're all sitting, the three of them on the floor in the living room like that. They found that the blinds in Susie's bedroom. So where the girls were sleeping, were sort of a little out of sorts, almost as if they had like, if they had peered out down to the front to like, see if, you know, someone was outside, nothing has ever really come from this. So like, that is all that we have to go on. Some broken glass on the front porch, the three purses sitting there, no signs of forced entry, no signs of a struggle, all of their cars there, although apparently one of the cars was parked oddly, but that's it. And Janelle, I believe, started calling as early as eight or nine in the morning. The girls didn't get home till probably three. Such a short window of time. Yeah, man. And this this one is, I think it's pretty clear this one's never going to be solved at this point. The only way is a confession. I think the only way. It's just so weird. And there's there's a big rumor, by the way, that the women's bodies are buried like in the foundations of this parking garage at this hospital. A crime reporter ended up going there brought this mechanical engineer with her who used this like it's like a ground penetrating radar that comes up with like anomalies in sites that could be like grave sites and of course he literally found three anomalies that were roughly the same size that were consistent with grave site locations two of them were right next to each other and the other was like perpendicular to it the cops have never looked into it because the parking garage construct, I don't know. The parking garage construction started a year after the disappearances and they just, there's no like reasonable evidence to say that they were there. So they've just never dug it up because they said it would just be too let. It would be so expensive to then have to rebuild it. But, like, they need to just fucking dig it up just so that they can tell us that it's not the case, you know? Yeah, that is is tough because there's been a fair number of cases where they try to do something like that, come up with anomalies, and then it's almost never what they're looking for. No. And so many – so there's been some interesting things about this in terms of, like, maybe what happened. So – One thing that's been, I think, one of the prime potentials is there there is this criminal Robert Craig Cox. He's a convicted kidnapper and robber. He was a suspect in a Florida murder. And in 1997, he told journalists and keep in mind, he was a guy that it seemed a little bit like he wanted the publicity. But in 1997, he told journalists that he knew that they'd been murdered and he claimed that their bodies would never be recovered. He said they were buried, they're never going to be recovered. And the thing is, in 92, when they disappeared, 
Cox had been living in Springfield and he was interviewed by investigators at the time as a person of interest. And he had told them that he was with his girlfriend at church the morning after the women disappeared and had been with her. And she had, she had said, yes, that is true. But she later recanted that and said he had asked her to say that. And he also had said he was with his parents the night of the disappearance, which they did confirm. But again, a little bit interesting. Yeah. He And he says, and he still holds this to this day, he claims that he'll disclose what happened to them after his mother dies because he doesn't want to upset her. Damn, how old is she? She is... You know, not trying to be a dick, but like... She's in her mid eighties. Okay. So again, I don't, I don't want, I don't wish yeah, yeah, death to her, but it, but she does seem like she's getting up there. She's getting up there. So for this one, I don't know. I think. So there's one more thing I got to give you, and then you tell Go me ahead. what you think. So one, authorities unfortunately said because so many people had been over when everyone was sort of upset about the disappearance, like a bunch of friends and loved ones had been over there was like 20 people there so they think that tainted the crime scene but the one other thing there has always been there's a one woman that lived somewhat nearby you know within within the town who claims at 6 a.m that morning there was a van and that she saw I think it was Susie, one of the girls driving the van, looking disheveled with someone else, like a, a man sitting next to her at 6 a.m. that morning in the vicinity. And I mean, it, there's no reason not to not to believe it. It was apparently a green van. I guess I think someone was was already in the house. Maybe they broke in, but there's no signs of fourth century. But I think somehow somebody got in and, and obviously didn't didn't kill them there because there would have been evidence, but maybe kidnapped them and, and killed them somewhere else. But who and why and when is, is, you know, who knows? There's so much that we just don't understand. And it wasn't a robbery because there was all the money was left in the purses. So it just doesn't make sense. It's like, here's the thing. I feel like there's, again, like you just said, there's so many directions we could go in with this. Part of me feels like it had to be either. Because, okay, by the way, so Susie and Stacy, they weren't expected to sleep over the house that night. So to me, it either had to be perhaps someone and sh and the mother was a she worked at like a hair salon. So it's like to me, someone either was going after the mother or someone was going after the girls and the other one got caught in the crossfire. I just don't see it being just a random house that some weirdos go up to. It's almost like even if you knew you were going to kill these specific people, it still feels like you would grab the money. Why not? It's right there, you know? 
Like if you're just a career criminal and you're preying on random houses or even you've scoped out this house, like all they've done is get these people and probably murder them. Like it's just so specific. So specific. And again, by the way, because I just found it actually what I was meaning to say about how one of the cars had been parked oddly. So Susie's car, she always parked in a certain spot. And she was parked in a different spot that some people have said potentially gives a clue that like maybe some a car was already parked there when they got there. Again, we'll never know. We'll yeah. never know. Three women just disappeared in the middle of the night and we will most likely never know what happened. It sucks. Fuck, man. Well. It's a dark ending, but that's true crime for you. That's what you have to, and that's why we're into it, is because we all want to get justice, you know? Well, we hope you enjoyed, and maybe we'll do some more of these. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we are we are prone to rabbit holes, and if you are too, you know, hopefully we've sort of whet your appetite for these cases, and, you know, I think for us, it's just the more the more attention we can bring to these cases, the better chance, even if it's totally minuscule but it is slightly better chance that they get solved. And that's, that's all anybody wants. I agree. Well, I think it's time to go, but if you like this episode, if you like any of the episodes, we've been meaning to say this, but please write us reviews on Apple podcasts. If you, if you so please, but it really helps us out. I'm sure you've heard this on other podcasts, but if you can give us five-star reviews, it really helps us out to get noticed. So we'd very much appreciate it. If you want to find us on social media, we're at Top Fives and Deep Dives on Instagram. We're at Top Dives on Twitter. You can email us at topfivesanddeepdives at gmail.com. We love you all. We'll see you next week. Peace out. Top fives and deep dives with Tata PTM. 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 My favorite director would have to be Martin Scorsese.